Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. 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 Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned.
please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Um, I'm just going to do a very brief um, welcome to you all and a, a few words of my own thoughts of late. Um, but one of the things I did was I had a look back at what, before I thought about what I was going to say today, I had a look back at what I said last year. And um, it was great because I was able to stand here and brag about how lucky we were to have got our £88.4 million pounds and what we were going to do with it and all the plans we had. And, um, you know, I, I was, we were looking at it as an opportunity and I feel quite differently today, but that's the difference a year makes, I suppose. Um, but I am going to tell you something of what we've... Um, what we've already done in this last year, is we've continued to work on our um, existing properties and uh, we've got planning permissions for refurbishment, redevelopment of some of our sheltered accommodation. We've finished the first phase of our council housing in um, Meadcourt in Stansted. We've dem demolished the second phase and that's due to complete next year. Um, we're, back on, we're on site in um, a small development of council homes in Catons Lane in Saffron Walden and we continue to work with um, housing associations across the district to try and deliver affordable houses for all those um, that are in need. Um, and I am really proud of these achievements and um, you know, I'd like to take advantage of being able to tell you that, but um, I'm not sure what we're going to be able to say next year as our plans are going to be extremely um, challenging as it will be for lots of other housing providers. Um, we'll try to continue um, with our programme but with the sweeping changes that are made to the housing bill which I'm sure we're all going to discuss later this, this does become a great challenge to us. Um, you know, for, for us, the right to buy, forced rent reduction, sale of high-value um, council homes when we live in a high-value area, these are all things that are going to um, cause us some headaches and we're going to have to work out how we're going to deal, deal with this. Um, but the most important thing is, is for us as a council, we want to continue to provide affordable homes and quality homes for those people that are in, in need in this district. Um, we don't particularly plan to roll over and just accept what we're being told we have to do. Officers and myself met recently with um, Alan Hazelhurst, our MP, and we made him fully aware of our concerns. And um, our leader, um, Council Leader Howard Rolfe, he attended the party conference last week and he also expressed our concerns to um, ministers there and has arranged a meeting for us um, with Brandon Lewis and we will be lobbying him to try and get our point across. Um, for us, really, the devil is in the detail, and at the moment, we don't really have the detail. So we're just going to keep trying and trying to inf influence the way um, that the government proceeds. I'm not sure what influence we'll have, but we will, we're not going to go down without a fight this time. We're normally a very good council who accept what's um, going on, and we work out a way of working, working with that, with the policies of central government. On this occasion, I think we're going to try, we, we will still have to do that, but we are not going to do it without making it known how we feel. But um, I don't want to go on. Let's just um, 
how I feel at the moment. But um, again, I thank you all for being here and um, look forward to hearing from all the different speakers um, this morning and how we can all continue to work together. And I look forward to hearing your comments and questions during the during the morning, but um, Colin Wiles is here for us and uh, he will be chairing this meeting and um, I'd just like to hand over to Colin. Thank you. Is that okay? Right, well thanks uh, Julie for the introduction and thanks for uh, inviting me here today. I think this is the third or fourth time I've been to this uh, conference to talk about um, housing issues and I think this year probably more has changed in the last uh, week or so than, than I've experienced for many years. And I'm so what I'm going to talk about really is just to set the scene about where we are in housing and um, planning at the moment. I'm going to talk about the national picture in terms of the housing crisis and uh, some of the house building issues that are uh, affecting the country as a whole, the planning issues. I'm going to touch on welfare reform and then I'm going to talk about uh, the big changes that are happening in terms of housing associations, right to buy, which you mentioned, and lastly the housing bill which was produced uh, yesterday. which. I think we're all in the process of trying to digest, so I'll try and give my thoughts about that. I think the first thing is just to talk about the, um, the housing crisis, because I think all of us will probably accept that there is a problem with housing, that house prices are too high, and I'm sure everyone in this room will know a, a relative or a friend who's living in um, poor quality accommodation or can't afford to buy or is affected by... Uh, poor housing, bad landlords and so on, and many people will be sitting on waiting lists hoping to be able to get a property from uh, Uttlesford or from a local uh, housing association. These figures just show you the house price ratio, so that it's the ratio of average house prices to average incomes. Uh, you can see that for Essex as a, home, it, as, as a whole it's nearly 9, but Uttlesford it's 10.2, uh, and the mean rent for Uttlesford is £901 a month for a private sector uh, letting. Cambridge is a bit higher than, than here, obviously. Um, in terms of housing need, 54,000 acceptances for homeless households um, in, in the last year. Uh, that's uh, up slightly from 2013-14. Currently, there are 66,000 people living in households living in temporary accommodation and about 1.4 million on, on waiting lists. That's gone down, and that's partly because local authorities have been given powers to shave people off their waiting lists, in effect. So whether that's a true figure of need or not is, is up to you to decide. And 1,800 in Uttlesford. Um, again, affordability. I'll just run through these because there are other things to talk about. But this graph I think I used last year, it's just a graph that Shelter have produced showing... Uh, house building over the last um, 70 years or so, going back to the uh, Second World War at the, at the far left there, 1945. And you can see from that that from a standing start after the war, there was a real boost in house building, prefabs and genuine regular houses as well. Um, but the top line of the graph is the total 
and you can see that from the 60s onwards it start, started to go down to the, to the current uh, time now. But the, the, uh, the beige, I'm not sure what colour that is, but the beigey colour at the top is council house building. The blue at the bottom is owner-occupation housing. And then the pink um, stretch in the middle is housing associations. So when council house building was, was tailed off in the 80s, um, housing associations were meant to fill the gap, but, but they never did to, to the same extent that councils did. So I think that really shows that the private sector on its own can't really meet the number of homes that we need to build, which is about 250,000 a year. That's, that's the need, and we're only building about 120,000 a year at the moment, and, and have been for the last few years. So there's a big deficit building up because of that, and I think many people would argue that we either need to stimulate the private house builders to build more uh, properties in terms of releasing more land, or we need to invest in public sector housing to fill the gap that, that's, that exists there. And the, the red line there shows the nominal rise in house prices over that period. Uh, this is a slightly more complex graph, which I won't go into any detail, but it really shows that um, when you build homes, you're also often demolishing homes at the same time, so that you have to look at the net increase in homes rather than just the absolute increase. And the, the blue line there is the net increase. The red line is the total amount of house building. Uh, and the black line at the bottom is population increase. So what we have at the moment is a kind of perfect storm where the net increase has been going down and population is going up, and the two are effectively overlapping, so that's why we have the problem that we have. There's just some figures there on house building. Um, as I said, it's about 120,000 a year being built at the moment, and even the government's own uh, forecasters say we should be building about 240,000, 250,000 every year, which we haven't been doing. Uh, so we do need to build more. We need to build possibly more in cities, more on brownfield land, but that on its own is not going to be enough to meet 250,000 homes a year. So we do, we do need to think about countryside being built upon, urban extensions, new settlements, that kind of thing. I know that can be a controversial view sometimes, but... Um, if you look at England as a whole, it's worth noting that we have this notion of England being an overcrowded and densely populated, densely built upon um, island, but actually only about 10% of England is actually built upon in total. That's everything, houses, factories, roads, etc. And if you took the, the four walls that we actually live in, uh, the footprint of each house, so that's, that covers about 1.2% of England's land area. So there is land available to build upon. It just needs smarter uh, planning, really, to, to see that through. And if you look at the protected areas of England, that amounts to about 44% of um, England's area. So Greenbelt National Park, area of outstanding natural beauty and sites of special scientific interest. Um, Greenbelt clearly is a big issue, and you have Greenbelt to the south here in stretching up as far as Stansted, Mount Fitchett, uh, stretching down to Duxford from Cambridge to the north of you. Um, so greenbelt development is an issue that won't go away in a sense because many people feel that it constrains towns and cities and that 
it creates commuting across the Greenbelt into the outlying areas. Local plans, um, I know you're working on your local plan at the moment, so you're one of the 18% of local authorities that have not yet um, published a, a plan. Um, but this is the progress across the country of, of local plans. There have been some mixed messages coming from the government because Brandon Lewis, the Housing and Planning Minister, said a while ago local authorities don't necessarily have to produce a local plan. So, for example, um, if you look at the progress around London, most of the district councils in the Greenbelt around London have, have failed to produce or have, have a local plan adopted, and I think they're relying very much on Greenbelt protection. But this week the government have issued a circular saying local authorities must put a local plan in place by 2017, otherwise they will come in and take over the process and, and do it for you. Which might be tempting in some cases. Um, but I think to its credit, the government is very keen on house building. They want to see more homes being built. That's been a clear message from George Osborne. Uh, but the big emphasis really is on owner occupation and building for sale. And that's something I'll come on to in a second. Uh, community land trust, I was just asked just to mention this because it is a way of avoiding right to buy, for example. It's a way of ensuring that you retain ownership of property and, and land within a community. It's something I know East Cambridgeshire Council have put a big emphasis on as a way of trying to get um, affordable homes within their villages, within the district. So it's something that's worth thinking about for, for a, a rural uh, district like um, Uttlesford. But it does, I think the point at the bottom there, it does require a, a, a benevolent landowner to come along and offer free land or, or free land on exception sites. It, land is expensive and you, it won't happen unless you can get someone to uh, help you out with that or through the planning process itself. Um, it's just worth mentioning the planning guidance because I'm not sure if everyone's aware of this. There used to be a 10 home threshold for affordable housing. Uh, so um, developers could avoid having to provide affordable housing on smaller sites and that was and there was also um, a thing called the vacant building credit where you could uh, take existing buildings the floor area of existing buildings and set that off against new development in terms of affordable provision and this was challenged recently uh, by two local authorities one conservative one labor west berkshire and reading who, who argued that much of their affordable homes was coming through this, this route, uh, vacant building and the 10 home threshold. And um, the government has been forced, the, the High Court judgment went against the government and the government has been forced to change planning guidance to take those two things out of the guidance. So the point I'm making there is that local authorities can, if they work together, can challenge government guidance and can get things uh, changed. Although I think certainly on the 10 home threshold, the government is planning to appeal on that. Uh, welfare reform is, is obviously a big issue that's trundling on. Um, the whole basis of it is to try and make work pay. That's the Ian Duncan Smith's view. Spare room subsidy is, is something that has affected a number of people. Um, universal credit, which wraps up six uh, income-related 
benefits into one single monthly payment is taking its time to come through, shall we say. Um, there have been various pilots around the country. There's 120,000 people who are now on universal credit. And the idea is that uh, up to about 8 million will be affected in due course. So it is, it is fairly slow. Uh, but the big impact on you as a, as a stock-owning authority is that you will no longer have direct payments of rent. So the tenants will get the money in their bank account monthly and will then have to budget and, and pay the rent to you as part of that. So I think most of the pilots have shown that there is an increase in arrears, which you will need to think about. Uh, the benefit cap, the overall benefit cap, this was meant to say, look, no one on benefit should be earning more than the average wage and it's unfair that that should happen. So it started off at 26,000. That's now being reduced to 20,000 and that includes housing costs as well as day-to-day um, -day living costs. So people will, I think most people think that, that the main impact of the overall benefit cap is on rent because that's often the biggest component of someone's um, weekly costs. So the big impact on that will be to force people into cheaper accommodation. Then there have been various freezes on working age benefits. Uh, the big issue the other week about the tax credits being cut because of the Chancellor's announcement on the living wage, there is a thinking that that might change in the next budget because there's been such an outcry about it. Even the Sun has been running a campaign against it. Uh, so they might, the government might feel that they've miscalculated on that and then issues about the uh, employment support allowance and that changing and work assessments and all those things. So I'm sure these are all issues that are affecting you as a local authority. Um, so I'm just going to talk about housing associations because there's a big debate going on about uh, the future role of housing associations and I know you work with a number of associations in Uttlesford. Um, if I was to say to you, are housing associations private bodies? Who, who would agree with that? Sorry? You would. Or are they public? Private? Well, I think it's fair to say there is a, a degree of uh, ambiguity about their status, which goes back some years. Um, you can see there that George Osborne said quite recently they, they're part of the private sector, and then David Cameron said they're public sector bodies. So even at the highest level of government, there's some degree of um, ambiguity. Um, Housing associations say they are private independent organisations, but if you look at the facts, the facts are that for years and years they've been getting public grant to build homes, their governance is regulated, their rent levels are regulated, their de development is regulated. So many people would look at them and say, they might say they're private, but actually they're part of the public sector and they work with local authorities to, to provide homes and to meet your statutory uh, obligations. So this debate is going on um, and I think when the uh, Conservatives published their manifesto back in March, whenever it was, before the election, uh, they included a, as a last minute offer in there the right to buy for housing association tenants, which caused a fair degree of fuss at the time. And there was then this debate about can the government force private bodies to sell off their assets? That's their charitable assets in many cases. That can't be right. Um, and if they're private bodies, then 
they can no longer be private bodies because if you're forcing someone to sell your assets, then you're effectively expropriating them. Someone said it was the biggest expropriation of assets since the, uh, Henry, the fifth, Henry VIII um, <laughs> took over the monasteries. Um, so that debate's happening. Uh, and the fear was that the Office for National Statistics, which dis- decides whether bodies are public or private, a few years ago they decided Network Rail was a public body rather than a private body. Um, so the fear was that they would reclassify housing associations as public bodies. And if that happened, the, public, uh, the, the borrowing that housing associations had taken on since 1988, £60 billion in total, and they've also had about £45 billion of grants in that time. So £60 billion of assets which sit on their balance sheets and which are treated as private borrowings that would all be reclassified and would go onto the government balance sheet, in other words, onto the public sector borrowing requirement. Clearly, the government does, does not wish to add money at a time of deficit reduction onto the public balance sheet. So the fear is that that would go on the public balance sheet, they'd be reclassified, and then the government would try and get rid of that debt as soon as it could, in other words, selling off the debt to the private sector, which effectively means the, re, the, the, effectively means the privatisation of housing associations. So that was the fear that the housing association sector had at the time of the election. And it's a fear that the National Housing Federation have acted on by offering a voluntary deal to the government on right to buy, rather than going through the legislation uh, route. So the right-to-buy offer that they made, which does impact on you as a housing authority, um, what they said to the government is, we will offer you a a voluntary deal. Our tenants will be able to buy their own homes uh, under the same circumstances as council tenants who have the right to buy. There will be exemptions for rural schemes and for specialist uh, schemes for people with disabilities and also for... Um, non-grant schemes. So many housing association properties were built before 1974 when there were no grants available to uh, associations. Peabody, all these old um, charitable organisations, William Sutton Trust and so on. So many of these big mansion blocks in London built in the 1880s, 1890s were built without any grant at all. So the NHF, the National Housing Federation, put those into the frame to say we will treat those as exemptions to the right to buy. But those tenants will still have a right to buy, but not the home they're living in. So they would be given, the discount would be worked out, and they would be then given that sum of money as a portable discount to go and buy something somewhere else. So that was the offer. Um, But the catch to this was that the discount which could amount to billions of pounds, six billion, seven billion pounds over the life of the scheme, maybe more, um, because tenants at the moment can get a discount of up to 100,000 pounds off the price of their property uh, for London, Uh, 70-something thousand in Saffernwall, in Uttlesford. That's the maximum discount. So that discount has to be paid by someone, and the idea is it will be paid for by forcing you, stock-owning authorities, to sell your most valuable council stock. Um, 
I'll come on to that <laughs> in a moment. But the, in terms of the replacements, for uh, the, the offer to the government said we will give our tenants uh, the right to buy, but once we've sold that property, we, we will replace it on a like-for-like on a -like basis. Um, but actually, if you read the detail, it's not like-for-like, -like, so it wouldn't be you sell 10 Acacia Avenue and you build 15 Acacia Avenue in, in its place. Um, at the same terms, social rent replaced by social rent. That's not what's in the offer. What it says is there will be one-for-one -one replacement on a national basis and not by tenure. So you can sell a social rent home at a rent of, say, £500 a month and you can replace it with an affordable rent home or an intermediate rent home or a shared ownership home or a home for sale. And it could be a sale in um, Saffron Walden and you build in Great Yarmouth and that's one for one replacement. Um, the ballot which the NHF undertook, they, they balloted all their members and it was done on the basis of the number of properties you had rather than the number of associations. So 45% of associations didn't vote, voted no or abstained. 55% voted for the offer being made to the government, but that amounted to 93% of the stock, the housing association stock. So the offer has been accepted by the government and it's now included in the housing bill, which I'll talk about in a moment. So as a consequence of this offer being made, um, lots of high-value council homes will be sold. The way this will work, it will be, the details have yet to be uh, published, but the, the, the thinking is it will be done by region and by bedroom size. So the top third value one-bed properties in the eastern region, for example, will be sold as they become vacant. Um, the same for London, the same for other regions. So what that means is that um, as properties become vacant, there will be a determination, is this a high-value property? And you will be assumed to have sold that property. My reading of the housing bill is you don't have to sell it, but it will be assumed that as it becomes vacant, you will be selling it. Um, so, for example, in a London, more or less everything that becomes vacant will be sold because London is treated as a region. So Westminster, Kensington, Chelsea, um, Camden, Islington, the properties there are very high value compared to Barking or Hounslow. And the same for Uttlesford is very high value. Cambridge is high value compared to Great Yarmouth or Lowestoft. So the figures, I think Shelter produced these figures showing that about 40% of your stock in Uttlesford would be affected by this. In other words, 40%, uh, four out of every 10 um, properties will be up for sale as they become vacant, which is the, the eighth highest in the region. So I think that's about, well, that's going to have a significant impact upon your ability to house people in the future. Um, I think the other key thing to talk about is the housing bill which was produced yesterday so people are still digesting this um, but one of the announcements that uh, George Osborne made uh, back in the summer was about starter homes but they put more um, flesh on this in the housing bill 
So what they're saying is at the moment you have the uh, planning power to say to developers on this site we want a certain percentage of affordable homes and affordable homes generally has meant social rent, affordable rent or possibly shared ownership. So some element of genuine affordability. Um, what the government has announced now is that they're getting rid of that affordability uh, criteria for Section 106 and that from now on it seems to be the case that on big um, planning sites starter homes will be the presumed tenure and will be defined or redefined as affordable homes. So starter homes where a starter home is something that's sold to anyone under the age of 40 and which has 20% taken off the sale or market price. Uh, Shelter did some work on this to show that actually across much of the southeast that would not be affordable to the kind of people that you tend to deal with, i.e. people on low or middle incomes. So the big emphasis of this government is really on house building, owner occupation, rather than affordable housing. Um, but the net effect of this is that across the country about 40% of all affordable housing that came through from housing associations last year was built on Section 106 sites. So more all, all, all of that will disappear. So housing association development will be uh, severely disrupted because of that, because they, they do rely on big developers to come forward with sites. And starter homes will, will replace it. At the moment, we don't know what the detail of that is because throughout the housing bill that published yesterday, it just refers to future regulations. So there's lots and lots of questions still to be asked about the detail of that bill. Uh, the second thing that's in the bill is, is the right to buy, um, so-called voluntary scheme. Now, the Housing Federation, they were desperate to avoid legislation, so there's a question in my mind there's clauses in the bill about a voluntary right to buy scheme and that's legislation so I'm not quite clear how this will work in practice because I don't know if you know um, a journalist called Isabel Hardman who works for the Spectator she used to work for Inside Housing she published a, a, an article last week saying that she knew of a list of uh, Conservative MPs who would have voted against right to buy and the majority of the government is only, what, 10, 10, 11? Uh, so she felt that the right to buy, which was introduced at the very last minute in the manifesto, as I mentioned earlier, and is very much opposed by many peers in, in the Lords as well, she felt that that legislation would not get through Parliament. So there are some uh, questions about why the NHF put forward this voluntary deal in the first place, which I can answer my theory on that, if you wish to hear it. Um, but uh, the right to buy is there in the housing bill, and it, again, it just talks about regulations that will be published about how the scheme will, will work in, in, um, in practice. But what it does say is that it will be funded by the sale of high-value council property. That's quite clear. So councils, as I read it, it says... Each year, councils will be required to uh, work out how many high-value, yet to be defined, high-value properties they've had coming vacant 
take off, work out the total cost and value of those properties, take off any admin fees, and then send that sum of money to the Treasury every year. It doesn't say you have to have sold those properties, but it does say you have to have assumed you've sold them and send the sum of money off to the Treasury. So you can choose, by my reading, to find the money elsewhere and not sell the properties, but I don't know how, how you're meant to do that. Um, so the right to buy is in there. And the other thing it says about the right to buy is that it will be a compulsory scheme for all housing associations. So even though 45% didn't vote for it, they will still be required to uh, offer that scheme to their tenants. <coughs> and um, that will be enforced by the HCA through the regulatory standards. So there will be enforcement notices, there will be you know, slaps on the wrist in the normal way that you get through the regulatory judgments. And I'm assuming that the uh, tenancy standard, which they comply with at the moment, will be enlarged in some way, or there will be a new standard to make sure that they mm -hmm. offer that to their tenants. The bill also doesn't say anything at all about the exemptions I mentioned, like rural homes or specialist homes. Again, that's left to regulation, so we have to wait and see whether that will be agreed. Uh, the next thing in the bill is about pay to stay. Um, this is, I don't know if you remember um, Frank Dobson and Bob Crow. Big fuss about them a couple of years ago, you know, living in council or housing association property and earning 150000 a year. So the government has got a bit of a bee in its bonnet about people on high salaries living in what they see as subsidised housing. Um, so what... A couple of years ago, they introduced a voluntary scheme where you could charge a higher rent to your high-earning tenant, but that's been uh, not, not taken up a great a deal. It was voluntary, but this is a compulsory scheme. So they're consulting on it at the moment, but the idea is that if you're earning more than £30,000 a year um, and HMRC will be giving landlords information about what, what your tenants earn, then you will have to pay a higher rent and they're consulting about whether that should be a market rent or something in between the current rent and a market rent. So again, details yet to be uh, revealed. The next thing in there was about uh, deregulation for housing associations. Part of the offer that the NHF made to the government was not just about right to buy, but as a quid pro quo for that offer, they said they wanted... Um, a lighter regulatory regime to be put in place. So more power to sell properties without consent, uh, more power to set their own rent levels, and more power to pick and choose the tenants that they take for their properties. And if you go back um, to look at the genesis of this idea, there was a think tank called the Policy Exchange who did a report last November called Free Housing Associations, uh, which talked about taking off the, the regulatory burden from housing associations to allow them to build more homes and to be more efficient. Um, my personal view is I don't think it's red tape and regulation that's stopping housing associations from building homes, but <laughs> that's another matter. Um, so the, there's a very short sentence in the housing bill which just says we will... Uh, bring forward regulations to lift the regulatory burden on housing associations. That's all it says. So again, we've got to wait to see uh, the details of that. But the theory I mentioned that I'm coming to is that 
the NHF offered right to buy as a kind of um, bait to get these extra freedom, freedoms. And that's, that's what it was all about. They, they weren't so much worried about legislation or not legislation. They just wanted those freedoms that were set out in that policy exchange report. And by offering the right to buy to the government, they thought that they could get those, uh, get those freedoms. Um, whereas if they went down the legislative route, the ONS might reclassify them as public bodies and then they would become private bodies in due course and the game would be over. As I say, that's just a theory of mine at the moment, so don't take it uh, too seriously. There are a few other things in the housing bill which you know, have merit. There's talk about um, uh, tackling rogue land landlords and, and banning orders and this kind of thing. There's other stuff in there about the neighbourhood planning and uh, planning, planning in general, um, which are worth looking at. And the other thing I should just mention is the issue that came up in the summer budget, which was the 1% cut in rents for housing associations um, and, and, and council landlords. So when George Osborne was trying to um, put together the maths of the 12 billion cut in welfare uh, payments, one of the things he looked at was housing associations. And I think... Um, for the past 15 years, social landlords generally have had above inflation rent increases. So they have had a pretty good deal uh, in many ways. Um, and I think he suddenly twigged on that, that here's a sector that can take more of the strain and we can start to take money away from them. But there had been a 10-year agreement on rents, which had been put in place quite recently, and that was basically thrown out the window. So councils and housing associations have put together their business plan based on a 1% on an above inflation increase, CPI plus the formula, 0.5, was it? Yeah. Um, and that all went out the window. So now they've got to cut their rents by 1% for the next four years, which is about 12% in total, which will take about £4 billion off the income of housing associations over that period, so it, it will have a big impact uh, without any doubt. So that's a, really a quick run through of where we are. I'm sure I've missed um, some things, but I hope it gives you a flavour of what's happening in the sector at the moment and some of the big challenges I think that are facing authorities like Uttlesford in, in trying to deal with homelessness and meeting um, housing needs. But I'm happy to take any questions. Good morning. Um, I've, in trying to do some research on the voluntary right to buy bill, which was quite tricky online, I couldn't find out very much, um, I'm sure I read in a statement by David Orr that the offer, um, they expressly did not accept that the um, councils should be required to sell off the high-value council houses to subsidise the sale of the housing association houses. What happened to that, or was it just rejected out of hand by the government? Um, the offer document refers to the sale of high-value council properties. So I think it was slightly disingenuous of him to say that's nothing to do with us, because he clearly knew that that was what was being proposed. They did, the NHF didn't consult with local authorities or local authority bodies or the... Um, Association of Retained Council Housing, CPRE, rural bodies. They didn't really consult with anyone 
outside of the NHF in framing their offer. So they were well aware that the sale of council property was going to fund the discounts. Does that answer the question? There's been a, a degree of um, misleading statements about this, I think. And the NHF seems to have clammed up completely. So there are various questions about the ONS and whether they spoke to the ONS about you know, wh whether this offer would genuinely keep them off the government balance sheet. And they, they're not really saying very much. Could you just say who you are as well? Yeah, my name is uh, Councillor Janice Lachlan. Um, I don't know if this is a question, it might be a statement. Um, our own council has written to the government. This is a Conservative administration and they've obviously been shocked by what's happened. Do you think that if enough local authorities wrote to the government and said how awful this actually is and how much how many people are going to be put into hardship by this selling off council properties and housing associations. Do you think that the government are likely to listen? I know you probably can't, you can't speak on behalf of the government. Also, you have the right to buy uh, and, and low-cost homes to buy, but people can't afford mortgages. They go to a building society and ask for a mortgage. Uh, if you're a young person or a single person, you won't get one. So it is going to be the wealthy or the better off that are going to buy these low-cost homes because people that need them won't be able to afford them. So I suppose my point is, do you think that people power may do any good? I suspect it won't, but uh, what do you think? I, I think people power can always work, certainly with um, a majority, with su a, a government with such a slim majority. I think if there is a genuine grassroots um, rebellion on that, then it would have an impact. I mean, I know South Cam's, the, the uh, portfolio holder there has been expressing similar sentiments about that this is just not right, you know, it's not working, it's, it's not how it should be. Um, so I think the more people who protest about it, probably the better. I think on right to buy, um, no, sorry, I won't talk about that. <laughs> yep. Good morning. My name is Debbie Wildridge and um, I'm running one of the workshops this afternoon on community land trusts, so I welcomed your slide on community land trusts. I just wanted to say that we do seem to have a model, um, which I'll be talking about later, where we're actually working with landowners to um, share an uplift between the community land trust and the landowner and the developer so that everybody gets the benefit um, but there is something in it for the landlords to work with community land trusts. And I think my question is, is it genuine that the government have ignored the fact that an awful lot of people want to rent? It seems to be that everything which is coming out of their policies and the housing bill um, is all about owning properties, but there is a huge number of people who, for whom renting is a much better proposition. Yeah, I think, as I said, that the emphasis seems to be wholly on home ownership. Um, home ownership 12 years ago was about 
It's now about 63%. So it has declined quite considerably over the past decade or so. And the Conservative Party see themselves as the, the party of home ownership. So I think they're desperate to increase that percentage by any means possible. Um, my view is that shifting properties between tenures, i.e. from social housing to private ownership, uh, I mean, it's great for the tenants. You know, who wouldn't want a £100,000 sack of money being given to them? If I was in that position, I'd probably want that and take, you know, it'd be very hard to resist. Um, but I don't think moving property between tenures is the answer. You need to look at the overall housing supply and the needs of each local area and, and be a bit more savvy about, you know, local needs and not just say, if we build more homes, people will be able to afford to live there because that's, that's a fairly crude uh, response to the, the problem, I think. Uh, James Reynolds, uh, community, Essex Community Rehabilitation Company, formerly Probation. Um, you touched on. Uh, uh, do apologise. Uh, you, you touched on the ability for housing associations to uh, have more ability to pick and choose who they took. Has there been any fleshing out of what that will mean? Uh, no, is <laughs> the answer. Again, it's it's left to regulation. Um, the, 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 the report I referred to, the policy exchange report, it was one of the issues that some of the biggest housing associations raised as a, uh, an issue that they wanted to have more choice over who they let to. So I don't know how that would pan out. I mean, clearly at the moment you have nomination agreements and you have a process for nominating and people being rejected and appeals processes and so on. Um, I mean, I think when the affordable rent product came in, which replaced the previous social rented, uh, you know, with rents up to 80% of um, market rents, there was some surprise that they were still going to be allocated through the existing system to people in the greatest need, whereas many people felt, well, these should be treated as intermediate products which, which go to high, higher earning um, households. But I think it's that kind of thing that they want to be able to act more like commercial uh, bodies and pick and choose who they, who they take, take up references, deposits, all that kind of thing, things that at the moment they're not permitted to do. Uh, Howard Rolfe, I just want to reiterate uh, the points that Councillor Redfern made earlier and, and have been referred to by Councillor Lachlan. Uh, this, this council is, is particularly concerned that it will have fewer affordable houses, social housing, uh, at its disposal and as a consequence has written to the government um, and we led uh, the rest of Essex, uh, all, all authorities in Essex, to write a, 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 an even longer, more detailed letter actually to both to the Secretary of State and uh, the Minister, and I think it went to the Prime Minister as well. So we are lobbying hard. I was very interested in your comments that maybe uh, the um, support for the right to buy might be flaky, and that's certainly something that I'll pick up. Um, it's been um, indicated that we've uh, got a meeting lined up it's, uh, uh, with uh, the, the Minister for Housing, Brandon Lewis, uh, and uh, it will be about the detail uh, for Uttlesford because the message that I got last week from both Secretary of State and Brandon was that um, 
they are pretty determined around the right to buy. You may be right about the vote, but as a government, they're pretty determined. Uh, they're pretty determined about the reduction in rent, albeit that they did announce that for four years, so that has a time limit on it. And they're pretty determined about the right, uh, the, 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 the building uh, starter homes. So whether that means, uh, whether that, means that they are uh, as interested or more interested in starter homes than they are in social housing, we'll, we'll tease that out of Brandon. But... Um, some of those, is, and you indicated about benefit earlier, the government says one thing and then the reality nearer the time means they change their mind. And that, again, is the point of going to, uh, to lobby ministers. So we're going to be following this up most vigorously, uh, both ourselves and with partners. So we'll have to see how we get on. Good luck. I think we need to move on now to our next speaker. So, so thank you for all those comments. Our next speaker is Martin. Uh, Martin Payne is going to be talking about the progress with the local plan. Right. Okay, good morning everybody. <clears throat> Let's hope this works. Uh, no, is it on the desktop? Sorry, Martin, you're about to start. Yeah, well, I'm picking up at the end anyway, so I'll do it then. Okay, uh, yep, good morning. I'm Martin Payne. I'm the planning policy team leader here at Usselsford Council. Um, so, uh, clearly, the matter of housing supply is a major issue for the local plan, something that we're very focused on. Um, and something that's quite difficult out there in the community, obviously a very big issue for a lot of our, our residents um, and, and not an easy one to resolve through the local plan process, but uh, something that obviously is focusing our minds at the moment. So um, I'm just going to give a, a very quick run through of the process that we're uh, that we're following, uh, the point we're at at the moment, and then a few details about the consultation that's due to start next Thursday. So, uh, here we go, if this works. No. Right, so what is the role of a local plan? Um, the role of a local plan is clearly set out in the practice guidance. Um, a lot of the concepts that are set out in, in the practice guidance and the national planning policy framework are quite hard to explain simply. Um, but I think that the, the message that we're, we're trying to get out there is that we see the local plan as providing a positive framework for managing development. So development's going to happen whether there's a local plan or not, but it will be, hopefully the outcomes will be much more positive for everybody if there's a local plan there that's got the buy-in of, uh, of, of local people and support from local people. And it will provide that degree of certainty to, to assist in ensuring that the necessary supporting infrastructure is there and that the environmental impacts can be managed. 
So um, <clears throat> local plans are very ambitious in scope and clearly in a very short slot like this is any time to talk about a little tiny bit of it. Um, and particularly today we're here to talk about housing. So, um, so I'm not going to try and go into all the issues here. Um, and I know there's one or two councillors in the room who've probably, I think, probably been to the session where I subjected them to an hour and a half on, on just this, uh, this topic. So uh, I'll try and keep it brief. So um, I think one of the things that's most difficult to understand about the role of the planning system is this concept of sustainable development. And the, the little diagram uh, in the, in the left, on the left side here is, um, is really showing, it's a kind of a Venn diagram that shows how the social, economic and environmental dimensions of development uh, theoretically should interlock so that you have, uh, you have a sort of a win-win situation there. But the, the problem for us as planners in putting this together is that we have to juggle a whole range of considerations. And I think one of the most entertaining, uh, if I'm, I'm, I'm a planner, I'm entertaining for me anyway, parts of the MPPF is this paragraph 6, which says that we have to take paragraphs 18 to 219 as a whole, and that's what sustainable development is. So you can imagine the job that we have in trying to figure out how to apply this in reality. Um, big challenge. Um, there were some really excellent uh, points, I think, that Mr. Wiles made in his presentation, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to take issue with one of the statistics, and this is a little bugbear of mine. I've actually been through the spreadsheet uh, on the Planning Inspector's website. There's an Excel spreadsheet, and if you sort it by date at which plans were found sound, you'll find that actually only 95 out of the 337 um, have had plans found sound since the introduction of the MPPF in March 2012, and that represents 28%. My point in, in, in raising that statistic is not to say that Uttlesford hasn't had difficulties, because clearly it has, but it, it's, it's really not unusual and it's not alone. In fact, no authorities in, in Essex have had plans found sound since the introduction of the MPPF, so the 15 authorities in Essex haven't had plans found sound, and there are only two in Hertfordshire, where I used to work, uh, Hartsmere and Three Rivers, that have had plans found sound since the introduction of the MPPF. So it's a, it's a big challenge, and I think there are many reasons for that. Partly it's to do with the, the scope and the ambition of, of local plans and the, 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 the expectations around this. So clearly the government is concerned I think rightly, uh, local plans are a, a, a positive thing and, and they, 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 they should be helping here to deliver uh, development within the context of sustainable development. Um, and I think, again, Mr. Wells referred to the, the, you know, the ministerial uh, uh, admonitions, letters, uh, a little earlier in the year. We're very conscious of those. We need to get a move on with it. But at the same time, we have to go through, make sure that we've got all the elements of the plan in place so that it's sound and that it can get through examination. And, and, and there are certain, you, you can't shortcut all those necessary steps. You've got to get that right in order to get the plan found sound. Otherwise, you end up with, um, with, a, with a mess. Um, and the government's also set up a plan panel of experts, one of whom I think the sole representative of uh, local planning authorities um, and planning policy people is, is actually uh, a planning policy manager from, from one of the authorities in Essex. 
um, from, from Chelmsford. So it would be very interesting to see what they recommend and uh, how they propose to take this forward. So as I, as I mentioned, clearly Usselsford's had, had difficulties um, and the plan was found, the last plan was found unsound in December and then the, uh, the local planning authority invited the planning advisory service to carry out an independent review uh, of the, the previous plan. And there were four, four key messages that, that we've taken from that um, and that we're, we're addressing and we have addressed. So first of all, that we must, um, must very carefully appraise the alternatives and provide a clear narrative to explain to people how the plan's been put together. Um, and we've been developing that approach, and I'll touch on that a little bit in a minute. Secondly, uh, that we need to explain clearly how the council is working with organisations with an interest in the plan. Um, we've put together an engagement strategy um, as part of our, uh, our activities. Um, so we'll, we'll be uh, following that through over the coming months. Thirdly, um, preparing a joint housing needs study with neighbouring authorities and the SHMAR, which I'm sure um, some of you will be aware of, the Strategic Housing Market Assessment was published a couple of weeks ago and that was prepared jointly with, uh, with Harlow, Epping Forest and East Hertfordshire District Councils. And then finally, the um, big one was the uh, transport concerns for the longer term plan. So the inspector found that uh, whilst there was potentially capacity in the junction 8 of the M11 up to the mid-2020s, he was examining a plan that ran to the end of the decade. So he wanted to see a bit more reassurance, have a bit more reassurance that um, that, that could be addressed. So the council is in the process of appointing a transport consultant to look at those issues. So very quickly then, um, one of the messages that we've been emphasising recently is that there's a process that we need to go through to develop the new plan. We've obviously got to take account of national policy. Um, we've got a whole raft of technical studies and evidence that we're looking at. Um, we've, um, we've got to look at the alternatives and all of that will hopefully uh, help us in pulling together a development strategy and a vision for the district. And um, the, the sort of dark orange box is the, the bit where the local councillors really have a, you know, have a decisive influence there is the local policy and decision making and how we take that, that forward. Uh, and that's where we focus the consultations is on the, the decision making stages. But I suppose one of the key messages there is that decision making is constrained because we operate within a national policy context and we have to follow a process through. So it's not a case of a certain group of people on the council think that we should be doing this and another group think that we should be doing this and let's have a vote about it. It's really about following the process through um, and hopefully that will, uh, will produce a, a plan that at least can be explained to everybody even if not everyone agrees with it. So just to go back to national policy then um, and this point about sustainable development um, and trying to seek uh, joint, uh, joint gains for the economic, social and environmental aspects of sustainability. key point raised by the planning inspectorate is that it's very rare for any development to have no adverse impacts and on balance many fail one of these roles. Um, I think that's an important point because sometimes there's a slightly naive um, understanding of sustainability which is that it's, it's going to be everything's going to be, be fine that's a bit of a straw target to aim at in my view 
Um, so the local plan, um, local is an interesting word because in many ways the plans that we're putting together are strategic, particularly since the regional plans have been uh, done away with. Um, so we have to think about not only uh, Uttlesford and the individual settlements here, but the wider strategic context across the region and all our adjoining authorities. Um, and the key point is that local plans are a framework and a starting point, so they, don't, they can't possibly go into the detail of um, the, the planning applications go into or indeed neighbourhood plans go into. We have to be quite realistic about what can be achieved. They're supposed to be succinct documents. We can't, uh, if, they, if they get too long, they get very unwieldy and they take forever to, even longer to prepare. So, so as I say, in terms of the strategic planning process, we have to look at the wider area, travel to work areas, housing market areas, uh, quite interesting how you define housing market areas through levels of self-containment and there's a, a lot of information in the Schmar about that. Um, looking at cross-boundary infrastructure and catchments and thinking about unmet needs. So if one of the districts in a housing market area or more potentially has difficulty in meeting its needs, then can any of its neighbours in the, in the housing market area help out? And that's uh, an area of... Uh, great political difficulty I think where a lot of local planning authorities are coming unstuck and I know the government's been talking about introducing strength and guidance on the duty to cooperate so that will be another thing that we'll be looking out for. So just in terms of our context here then so you can see Uttlesford in the middle we're of course undertaking discussions with all of the surrounding authorities not just the ones in the housing market area clearly there are very strong links with uh, up and down the M11 with Cambridge here, uh, Cambridge major engine of, of growth and development uh, and source of, uh, of, of high value jobs particularly. Uh, we've got within Uttlesford of course we've got Stansted Airport which is a major influence um, on many of our neighbours and they're, they're, the way they're considering putting their plans together and then of course um, we've got the, the uh, A120 heading off to the to the east and Braintree, so lots of things that we're trying to consider through this process. So objectively assessed housing need, um, I mentioned the Schmar again, this figure from the Schmar uh, is uh, recently published, is 568 dwellings per year, uh, say last week, it's actually a few weeks ago now. Um, that figure is the recommendation and we'll need to look at that going forwards and um, so that's not the target yet, but it, you know, that, that is the figure that we're starting from. It's broadly in line with expectations, uh, seeing as the, the inspector last December recommended a figure of 580. But as I say, we don't know where the needs will be met in the four authority area, and we're going to need to work very closely with our neighbours to understand what the constraints and the opportunities are across that area. So why is so much housing needed? Um, I think one of the key things that we, we often try to explain in, in public meetings and so on is declining household size. So you've simply got, even if your rate of natural change, the difference between births and deaths doesn't change very much, um, then if you've got declining household size, fewer people in a house, you need more houses just to accommodate the same level of population. But we've also got migration, both international and domestic, and issues of declining affordability. And um, I think one of the 
one of the points to make, and I think it's been touched on earlier, is that increasing supply of owner-occupied houses isn't, isn't necessarily a panacea in this complex. It does have a very significant role to play, and the relationship between supply and demand is complex. So you've got all sorts of things like mortgage finance, uh, various different financial and social demographic factors to consider. And certainly it does appear that there are long-term challenges for the home ownership model. Um, whether they're coming to a head at the moment um, is a, an interesting point for debate, perhaps. So very quick point, um, distinction that's often lost um, and comes back to this point about local plans being the starting point. It's very important to understand the difference between planning applications and the local plan. So whereas planning applications are... Uh, in, in assessing planning applications, the council is reacting to detailed proposals, specific proposals. The emerging plan is looking to the future, and it's, it's, not, it's looking at the, print, the broad principles and strategy, and it's not getting down into those sorts of details yet. So um, I mentioned the consultation that's coming up. This, is, this, is, this diagram really is at the heart of the consultation that we're, uh, we're about to launch next week. Um, what we've done is we've obviously had to go back to the drawing board with the local plan. What we've, um, and I mentioned, I mentioned the, one of the key things that the inspector took issue with, if you like, last time round was the uh, failure to explain um, the rationale for the options, the options that were taken forward and those that weren't taken forward. So to address that point, what we've done is to develop uh, what we've called areas of search. So they're basic, basically very large, deliberately um, uh, vague, if you like, ovals that, uh, in different colours that cover most of the areas of the district along the strategic transport corridors and around the settlements. So we've, any, and all of these areas will be considered um, and we'll be gathering evidence and looking at the implications of development in those areas so that as the, as the council moves forward through the process and tries to narrow down uh, the options into a plan and a strategy, we've got all that evidence to show what we've done and on what basis decisions have been made. So uh, over time, uh, these will drop out and we'll end up with hopefully a map that shows our key diagram that shows our preferred strategy. Um, so the big blue ovals are basically areas that we're looking, uh, looking for assessing the potential for new settlements. So there's some really big, ambitious stuff. And a lot of, a lot of people in the district, one thing that's clear is that there's quite a lot of um, enthusiasm, I suppose, for the new settlement concept. But we have to work out whether there's a, a practical, a realistic chance of a new settlement being delivered in a good location, um, as well as considering perhaps smaller sites and what the implications of, of uh, either a, you know, dispersed a concentrated strategy or a mixture of the two might be. So we're seeking views on all of this through the consultation. And just to hammer home the point about justification, so this picture shows, it's the front cover of a report by Lord Heseltine from a couple of years ago. Um, it was called No Stone Unturned, and it's essentially about um, making sure that every uh, local planning authority in the country should make every effort to identify <coughs> suitable sites. So we don't just ignore locations because um, it might be politically difficult. 
we have to make sure that we've got robust planning reasons for looking at all of the options and, and then we have a robust basis to take to the inspector and say, look, we've followed due process and this is how we've, we've reached our outcomes. So, um, important message that we're trying to convey there. Um, the other, the other, another big thing that often people get generates degree of uh, confusion, if you like, is, um, is sites. So the council carried out what's called a call for sites earlier in the year. Uh, we, we had a lot of proposals from landowners and developers. But one of the things that we've been trying to explain is that this new approach is based on uh, looking at the strategy and how, uh, what, what the good planning principles are and thinking about the needs of the district and the opportunities <coughs> and the constraints that way, rather than simply reacting to proposals that may have come in. Um, there's, there's some practical reasons for that. I mean, it's partly because we've got so many of them, we want to put them all out together in context as part of uh, a report to the Planning Policy Working Group later in December. We don't want people to get distracted by those. They can come in at any time, and if we made them part of the consultation, then potentially if another one came in straight after the consultation, we would then have to reconsult and reconsult and reconsult, and it would never end. So there's really good practical reasons for uh, the approach that we're taking, which is focusing on the high-level strategy as part of this consultation rather than the, uh, the sites that have been proposed. Um, and they're a very variable merit. Um, so, um, so we're going to make all those sites public um, towards the end of the year. Um, hopefully that will be, if we can get it all done in time, accompanied by um, an initial view on uh, sort of observations on what the, the constraints and the opportunities are at each of those sites. And then that will be published in draft for anybody to comment who wants to, but we'll be particularly seeking input from parish councils at that stage. Um, but of course we can't, and the other key point here is that we can only, in terms of comments on those sites, um, we can only publish those as interim assessments because as national policy, the practice guidance makes clear, we need to take account of emerging policy and clearly if, if the strategy were to be to focus development in a new settlement, then that would have implications for all those little sites that might have been put in around the villages. So, um, or vice versa, if the strategy is to, to disperse development across the district, then that would have implications for what our view might be on very large-scale proposals that might have been put forward. So, so very much this is a step at a time. Uh, let's let's uh, you know, use that to inform the work that we're doing on the strategy rather than being led by these proposals. So just... Uh, a uh, couple of points specifically on affordable housing then and obviously people will be aware that one of the key issues that uh, local planning authorities struggle with and seems to have cropped up particularly, well increasingly, started with the Labour government and is now a well established feature of plan making and indeed the planning system as a whole is this concept of viability and um, for people like me who aren't trained surveyors, it's, it's always a bit of a, a minefield, this area, but we need to try and gather together all of the costs, um, that is, all the infrastructure costs for the big sites in particular, and understand what the impact of that is on affordable housing, what can be afforded. Um, and I think um, 
I mean, it's quite interesting. I worked previously when I was at East Hertfordshire. We worked on a very large scheme at Bishop Stortford North for 2,200 homes. And by the time the, uh, all the hard negotiations had finished, we employed expert viability consultants to really push the developers on this and to try to get to the bottom of all their, their figures. Um, what we, we discovered was that um, given that they were paying very significant contributions, millions towards school provision and so on, the affordable housing uh, percentage came down to 22%. So very, very difficult negotiations, and that was from a starting point of the district plan policy position of 40%. So really difficult, um, difficult issues to address here. But we won't know as part of the um, current local plan process here what level of affordable housing is going to be justifiable um, for some of those big sites, assuming we have big sites, um, until we have a, a better idea of a development strategy and what kind of infrastructure would be needed and what the costs of that infrastructure would be and how much developers would be expected to contribute. So um, key dates going forward then. So I mentioned the consultation will start next Thursday and it will finish on the 4th of December. That's called the Issues and Options Consultation. Then, all being well, if everything goes according to plan, we'll have uh, in autumn 2016 a preferred options consultation and that will be a draft plan. And then in spring 2017, we'll have a pre-submission consultation and that will be essentially the plan that the council intends to submit to the planning inspectorate for examination. So, um, as this is the housing conference, I thought I'd, pluck, I'd stick in there a slide on Question six, which is specifically about housing, uh, and you may wish to, uh, to get back to us through the consultation on this particular one. So what are the main issues relating to housing tenure mix and affordability which the council should consider? Very high level um, and gives you hopefully plenty of scope to make uh, any interesting observations or comments you wish to make. So um, the consultation documents are, will be, hopefully, next week, all up on the website. I don't know if you can see that. It's not very clear on this screen down here. Um, it's uttlesford.gov.uk slash LP, local plan consult. Um, and if you, if you are able to supply us your uh, comments electronically, that will, that will help us greatly. It's nothing worse than having a 200-page submission that's typed out and sent in uh, by paper which we then have to retype in um, so um, please refer to the question numbers in your responses as we'll prepare a consultation statement based around them ok questions uh, hi, um, sorry Richard Freeman can you go back to your slide which is headed uh, sites it's about three or four back Yep. That's it, you've gone past it, thank you. Now, the first bullet says the council will not be led by proposals. Now, I've had an interest in uh, development control for the last best part of two decades in this area, in Arthelsford, and almost all of the developments are led by proposals, in my experience, unless you have a def dif different definition of proposal to most other people. And the reason why is that large developments are on land which is already owned by the developer, developer and they're going to develop their own land. They're not going to buy it. There are some where farmers come forward and say, yes, I'd like to develop on this land. Granted, there's a very large development uh, hall, um, new hall uh, above um, Harlow, which is an example of that. 
the owner of that land happens to be one of my neighbours. But most of them are led by proposals, and I can't think of a single one over the best part of a couple of decades which has really been led by the council. Um, you can say, well, this area is designated for development, but it's then for the developer to come forward, and if it doesn't happen to have land there already, they probably won't. Uh, and of your map with the lozenges on it, or whatever you want to call it, if you go back to that, that excellent, thank you. <coughs> we have Saffron Warden and Dunmo, which were invested with um, lilac <coughs> lozenges, and there's no escape from them. Yeah, you know, they're, they're in a medieval sense, they're completely embattled. Uh, and you have some blue lozenges in the south around the A120. But the point is, and what's not mentioned on here, I would have mentioned it last night, but it didn't occur to me at the time, is that one of those lozenges, I think it's number seven, I'm not quite sure, I can't really read it from here, uh, between Stansted Airport and Great Dunmore, or that land, there's a huge swathe of land between Stansted Airport and Great Dunmore, which is owned by a single landowner. And that's a huge opportunity, because you could come out with a single settlement if you are entering into discussions with that single landowner. And that would be proactive, but as far as I can tell from what you've told us, uh, nothing is going to happen unless the person that already owns that land comes forward uh, uh, with a highly developed proposal upon which you will then decide. So I don't see that you can claim that they're not led by proposals. Okay, the odd house as infill in somebody's backyard, uh, that might be um, not led. Uh, but in this instance, I think all of the applications that I've ever seen, certainly the large ones, have come from the developer and have had very little council input. We react by saying yes or no, but we don't proact in this matter. I think you're, you're absolutely right that, um, that unless there is a developer on board and that the landowner is offering up their land for development, then there would be very serious questions asked about whether the plan was effective if the plan was to identify a field which had no hope of ever being developed. So, um, and that's one of the key tests of soundness in the national planning policy framework in terms of have you got an effective plan. So yes, we will need to make sure that by the time we get to examination of the plan that there are very well worked up proposals and also it might be looking at the phasing so if you're looking at the first five years of a plan in particular generally the expectation is that you will almost have planning applications ready to go by the time you get to examination so you need to make sure that you're working with those developers by the time you get to examination and that they're supporting the plan um, but I think that the point to make about the areas of search here is that um, a lot of the areas are um, are um, agricultural fields and uh, um, what will happen we hope is that the planning agents of whom there are many um, will, will be looking at this and thinking hmm oh, that might be interesting I'll see whether the farmer might be interested in, 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 in putting it forward so that, that this, this whole process might actually generate um, some more interest so that the council then as it's putting together its strategy can say yeah, that one looks like that might be more promising. Um, perhaps there is a bit of, of interest there. It's an early stage, but maybe towards the back end of the plan period there might be some, something there that you know, might have some mileage. But I think what would be wrong would be simply to, to ignore sites that on, purely on planning terms um, uh, might have a lot going for them. 
So this, through this process, because we're going through this issues and options stage as a first process, this can flush out options as we go further along. And that's part of that whole proactive approach, rather than simply responding to what's come, come in. So, um, so yes, we do, we do rely on, on developers, but it's, uh, it's an iterative process, and we need to make sure that the council has thought about the implications of all the different areas. And I think that there's an expectation in the community too, um, and I know that certainly the residents of Russellsford Group have made the point uh, on a number of occasions at our working group meetings here that um, you know, it's, it's somewhat frustrating in a way if you've got sites that people might think are good but no landowners come forward yet. So we need to make sure that we've done what we can to try and flush out those options as we're going through this process so that we've been rigorous and thorough and that we've got a robust plan. I think we need to move on if you're happy with that. I'm sure that Martin will be around to, to answer any detailed questions over the coffee and lunch breaks, but um, we, do, we are trying to stick to the timetable so uh, I'm conscious of the time and that coffee break was supposed to be at 11. I don't know if um, Judith and Kate want to do half and half each side of the coffee break or would it is that you do the whole thing it will be good okay so so we'll have Judith and Kate doing their presentation and then coffee break will slip slightly but we'll try and make up the uh, the time later if you're happy with that. So, I think it's worth mentioning because Cambridge where I live, the, the local plan process there has also been uh, disrupted by the inspector and they've been told to go away and come back with a, a better strategy. I've got the technology set up. <laughs> um, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm named Judith Snares, and I'm the Housing Needs and Landlord Services Manager here at Oxford <coughs> Council. Um, I manage the Housing Options and Homelessness team and the um, Housing Management team. So I sort of have uh, allocations and as well as homelessness under my remit. So um, I'm normally quite a glass half full sort of person, but um, after Colin this morning, I'm gradually becoming a glass half empty sort of person as to looking the challenges ahead for our department uh, with things as they stand at the moment. Just come to talk to you this morning about the um, new homelessness strategy um, which is just in, out in draft form at the moment. It's on the website for consultation uh, for the next six weeks so please go to the council's website um, and click on the links and have a look at the full strategy. And if you've got any comments, please come back to me. This document is uh, looking to be adopted along with the house, housing strategy um, in January of uh, 2016. So I'm just going to give a few sort of brief highlights from the strategy. And then one of our partner agencies, um, the CAB, Kate Robson, who's the manager of our local Uttlesford CAB, is then going to put us other perspective on homelessness and the sort of problems that we deal with within the, in the um, Uttlesford area. Um, just a few facts and figures just um, to show the sort of rusty orangey colour is the number of people who have been seeking in-depth housing advice from the Housing Options Service over the last um, five years and the blue is the number of successful homeless prevention cases. As you can see one's been going in one direction and the other's been going in the other. It's becoming increasingly difficult within resources to prevent homelessness. The options for people are getting smaller um, as to what they can do to solve their housing problems and 
they are much more reliant on the council to do that for them than to find anything in the private sector. Um, and the number of people obviously seeking housing advice who have got problems with their housing situation has gone up dramatically, as you can see. And I think Kate will also reiterate the number of people that the CAB see on housing has increased as well. This slide just gives you a brief uh, look at the main causes of homelessness within Uttlesford. As you can see, the ending of assured shorthold tenancies in the private sector is the largest cause of homelessness that we see. Parental um, friend eviction, second, domestic violence, rent arrears in sort of various sectors, um, relationship breakdown and very small uh, mortgage arrears. That's when I was first here in um, homelessness and housing, mortgage arrears was a big cause of homelessness in the district. Um, that was the time of the recession before last. Um, this time round, there's been much more work done with forbearance um, on mortgage, people with more large mortgages, and so we haven't seen the number of uh, people made homeless through mortgage arrears this time round as yet. A lot of that has been because, obviously, with the property market in the slump, people weren't selling their properties um, or building societies didn't want to take on properties that they then couldn't sell, so they were sort of therefore bearing with people rather than repossessing. Whether that continues in the long term, we shall see. Um, the main obstacles for preventing homelessness, uh, lack of affordable housing um, within the district in all kinds of tenures, um, limited access to affordable private rented sector properties. The people we see um, struggle we, we try to advise people, you know, if they come to us, we'll say, well, there's a long wait, we haven't got a property now, we'll help you look in the private sector. But they come back to us and they say, we can't find anything affordable. And unfortunately, we know that that is the case. Housing benefit, the local housing allowance in this area, does not match the private rents in this area. So if people are relying on benefit to pay their rent, they cannot, in most cases, find a property that is affordable if they're going to need to claim housing benefit. A lot of the clients we see have been in the private sector or other forms of housing and have got debt, um, either housing debt or just debt generally. Um, they can't pass the credit checks to get into the private sector. Another cause, obviously, of being able to prevent homelessness is relationship breakdown. They, you know, some relationships can't be put back together again. Those relationships are broken. It means someone needs to be rehoused. And a big issue that we're seeing much more of is, is chronic mental health issues. People out there in the, private, in the private sector, in all sorts of housing, who have got mental health issues and it affects their ability to sustain a, to, um, sustain a tenancy. Um, there's a massive pressure on mental health services um, in most areas and Uttlesford isn't immune from that. Just a snapshot. I mean, I know when I talk about homeless in Uttlesford, I mean, if I was in some local authorities, they'd think, what, those figures? What problem have you got? <laughs> but it's horses because it's resources. We are a small authority. We have a small amount of resources. So, okay, our numbers are small, but for us, it's not just numbers. It's people. It's what we can do for people. We've got 32 applications at that particular day being assessed for homelessness. 22 households in temporary accommodation. 14 of those were in our purpose, nice purpose-built council accommodation, which is self-contained. Um, two other in shared accommodation, nightly let accommodation, and six in bed and breakfast. We are still having to use bed and breakfast, mainly for single people. It's not ideal. We know it's not ideal. But in emergencies, if we've got nothing else, then it has to be bed and breakfast. 
those numbers don't tell the, the whole story. I'll just sort of give you a few examples. Um, one of the people in bed and breakfast, a single young man who had a, suffered a hedge injury a few years back under the mental health services. He tried to, to make his own way in the private sector and had done that, but then he lost that accommodation. The landlord wanted the room back. He was trying to find accommodation near his brother. He couldn't find anything affordable and ended up having to present as homeless to us and go into temporary accommodation. A care leaver who again, had left care and had sorted himself out with accommodation, had found a room to rent, but then the landlord wanted that property back and he couldn't find anywhere else in this area, wanted to stay in this area, links here, he couldn't find anything else affordable and he ended up in, and is in um, bed and breakfast accommodation currently. Another, a couple with a child who were evicted by parents, as I say, another common cause for homelessness. Again, that was one where they'd been living together for a long time, overcrowded, <coughs> relationships, under strain, got to the point where parents said, can't do this anymore, you're going to have to go. We'd been helping them trying to find private rental, they couldn't find anything affordable, they had to present as homeless, go into temporary accommodation. Another couple, again, who had found a private rental, had been on a quite a low rent, a good rent, within the private rented sector, but the landlord decided he wanted to sell the property, gave them notice. They then looked for other private rental and found rents had gone up massively from what they'd got. They couldn't afford it. And that was someone who was working, uh, working on a reasonable income, but he still couldn't find affordable accommodation, ended up presenting as homeless. And finally, another case of domestic violence. A lady who had suffered years of domestic abuse in a controlling relationship. Refugees said that she was too high support needs for them to be able to cope. She ended up in our temporary accommodation where she is being supported by Safer Places, the domestic abuse um, charity, mental health services, Family Mosaic are working with her. And these are all sort of someone who needs a lot of support but currently in temporary accommodation waiting for a permanent home. So as I say, it's not numbers, it's people that we deal with. And our homeless priorities for the next um, five years, these are the, the, what we've given ourselves. So preventing homelessness, um, providing high quality housing advice services in all ten years and sustaining tenancies to mitigate the negative effects of welfare reform that we heard and we know that is coming. To provide good quality, um, suitable temporary accommodation, to try and move finally away from bed and breakfast. Whether we achieve that, I don't know. It's going to be difficult. Um, try to engage with the private rented sector to improve access to accommodation um, in there, because we know that social housing, the way it's going, there's going to be even less than we've got now. We've got to find some way of getting, finding roofs over people's heads, and that may mean the private sector. We've got to find a way of accessing it. But in this area, it is so difficult because incomes just do not match the rents in the private sector. And then we also want to do work around improving the health and well-being of homeless people because most people it isn't just a roof over their head that they need, they need a lot of other health. They're presenting to us with many, many problems, challenging situations that they've found themselves in, support services that they need and it's making all those connections and linking up and trying to improve someone's life so that they don't become homeless again. How we'll achieve these priorities? Well, it's not going to be easy, as I've said. We've got a detailed action plan, which if you look at the, um, the strategy document, you'll be able to see how we're planning on doing this. 
We'll work with colleagues and partner agencies such as CAB and Family Mosaic and all the other people that we work with trying to, to, to um, make people's lives better and prevent them from being homeless or helping them when they become homeless. We work with the Essex Homeless Officers Group um, across Essex and authorities all get together and we discuss new ways of working, good practice, learn from each other. Um, and we will monitor the work through our homelessness partnership that we have quarterly meetings here. Um, and that's sort of just a brief snapshot of how we'll do things. And it's not going to be easy. And with all the proposed changes uh, to affordable housing, the choices that people have are going to be more limited. And at the end of the day, we will still be the agency of last resort for people. We'll still have that responsibility to help people who are homeless and find themselves without a roof over their head. We don't have a duty to everybody. We try to help people, advise people, but there's only a small group of people, ones we call in priority need, that we actually have a statute duty to help. There's lots of other homeless people who even the, the local authority isn't the, the, the last resort. It, there isn't anything. And we will have to do that with the resources that are available to us, because at the end of the day, as I say, it's people we're trying to help, it's not numbers, and we're trying to provide roofs over people's heads. And it's not going to be easy. And with all we've heard from Colin, I do worry about how we're going to achieve this. If we haven't got any properties to allocate, the numbers on the waiting list will go up, um, the numbers in TA, temporary accommodation, sorry. Where will we house them if we haven't got properties to help them in and we can't get people into the private sector? These are all big worrying issues. Um, don't know the answers to them at the moment. And obviously the strategy is as is now, but we may well have to look again and change that depending on where legislation takes us forward. Thank you. And I'll hand over to Kate, who's going to give the CAB's perspective. Thank you. Do you know how to work? <laughs> I don't, but we'll muddle through. Let's have a look. Thanks for that, Judith. While um, Kate's setting herself up, I'd just like to pass a comment on, that's come up in what Judith said and Colin um, about the extension to the right to buy and our, our house, uh, housing stock. And when we're talking about over 40% of our housing that might need to be sold, that is our general needs housing. The balance, pretty much the balance of what we'll be left with will be sheltered accommodation. So we won't have any general housing to house people in if we have to sell for over 40% of our, of our properties. I just wanted to make you aware, it sounds like we're going to still have 60%, but most of that is sheltered accommodation. Thank you. Thanks, Judith, for introducing me. Um, I know many of you. I hope you didn't mind. I came previously to put out a leaflet of this work that CAB does. And um, I also... <coughs> considered a lot about how much I should put about benefit reform in the presentation. You're pleased to know I didn't put anything in in the end because it's so complex and we've just had um, quite a big change in um, the potential impact um, from the last budget in terms of tax credits which will be a major impact. I've put a little leaflet out on everybody's there just to give an impression of where, where we see things are going. So maybe after this presentation over coffee if you want to have a read of it. Um, Let's just say it's in the same tempo as the rest of the meeting, very downbeat. Um, okay. Unfortunately, um, I don't think my presentation is going to actually uplift us, but there we go. We will try. Um, why are people homeless or threatened with homelessness in Uttlesford? Judith already gave a, little, a few snapshots of individuals. And I think I went back when I looked at this and sort of thought, really, these are the, sort of the core 
cases. Um, I think it's fair to say that every single person that we see on every household is slightly different. You know, but this is sort of four cases that I think um, sort of highlight the main causes. I think often people think of the street homeless, and we do see street homeless. Um, it's very difficult in Lockerford to be street homeless. Don't be street homeless here. We don't have a shelter. We spend a lot of our time phoning to actually get shelter places outside the district. It's a nightmare because we don't have to physically get them there before all the reds goes. But that's another issue. But Judith mentioned about non-priority people. Non-priority people really struggle in this district. Priority people struggle in this district. Okay. Mark and Emma's story. Um, they really are doing everything right, this couple. Um, they are working, both of them work, got a child, but the reality is you can't live on a very low wage, even if you're working full time, um, in this area. It's really, really difficult. And it gets worse and worse. Um, they have been doing right, they've been budgeting, um, they have been trying to save impossible. It was really getting difficult. They're starting to go into arrears. Um, they're really getting to struggling. We, we sometimes see people at different levels. This is when they're starting to go to food banks and that's how we got involved. Um, they had been looking for the last six months for accommodation to improve their situation, but they wanted to keep their jobs where they work. They wanted their child to continue at the same school. Um, but then they got to the stage that to re-rent, you need deposits, you need more money to move. They didn't have that by this stage. They're stuck and their situation is getting worse and worse. Um, Chris's story. I have a lot of relationship breakdown. People do actually come to us because of um, dealing with relationship breakdown. But often, people are forced to stay living together longer than the relationship is meant to last. Um, sometimes that can preempt um, abuse. Uh, but in this case, family decided, really, it had to split. Um, it was agreed that the gentleman living in Saffron Warden would leave the home, but he wanted to continue to see his kids um, and to continue to support his family and keep his job locally. The reality is it would be nice for him to be able to find somewhere to live that he could have the kids over to stay at least one night. It's not going to happen with their budget. Um, he ended up, well, I'll tell you how he ended up in a bit. Um, but basically he was heartbroken because he knew that however it was going to be, um, the, the, the fact is he wasn't going to be able to support his family. Okay, Tom and t we've got two, two different scenarios, the third scenario, Tom and jo Jenny's story. Okay, again, working couple, two kids, um, okay on the income situation. Second time where rented accommodation has been taken back through shorthold tenancy agreements. Um, first one was because the landlord um, wanted to give his house or let his house to his sister instead, and then they paid to move get a new place, and wham, again, they, um, the landlord decided that they want, he wanted to re-upgrade the house, he felt he could get more rent, um, and was told that he wanted the house back. It's costing them a fortune to move around, it's disturbing for the family, it's disturbing for the kids. 
I said it wasn't going to be upbeat, didn't I? Um, our last one, Amy's story. It tends actually, we chose this case, but we do see, tend to see more boys or young men than girls, but we do see females. Um, she had been getting on okay with her mum, but she mum remarried, couldn't get on with the stepfather, had a massive role, uh, argument, and was told to pack her bags. She's 19, so she's not vulnerable as such, she's an adult. Get on with it. <laughs> it's very difficult. Now, we'll work with the council, and the council will work with us, but we're having to really show vulnerability at this stage. Um, it's really, really difficult. Um, she's, <laughs> she's a really lovely girl, told at 19 she should be able to look after herself, um, but it's really hard when you've got nowhere to live. Okay. So what do we do to help? I'll whip through this because I'm, I'm conscious of time. But Emma and Mark, so this was the, the couple with the one child that was basically going into arrears and really financial issues. Well, we would be immediately talking to them from a CAB standpoint on bailiffs, how to prevent eviction. Um, we would be explaining the eviction process. Most people haven't gone through this process before in life. It's not something that's pleasant and how it would affect the housing status when they would become, when the council would have a statutory duty to help. Um, we would be negotiating with landlords, if possible. Um, we would be talking about what their options were in terms of making it cheaper to live for them. Um, we would be referring to the council at this stage because this will be moving into a homelessness situation. Um, we would be looking at charitable support. We are very lucky in this area. Um, we would be looking at trying to clear their rent arrears because that would cause a problem in terms of getting housing from the council. Uh, we would be looking at the potential of covering move costs. Um, we would do, be going back through all their debts and looking at priority and non-priority. Um, we're looking at benefit income, um, maximising their income, reduces their outgoings and helping to renegotiate bills. We will be very busy people. Chris, so this is the relationship breakdown. Um, people will come to us often because of the mediation side in terms of how you split families, but that's very much different. People will be moving at different times on that, but we would be offering advice on separation processes um, and the way to do that most economically as possible. We'd be looking at income and expenditure, helping him decide how much money he actually realistically would have. Um, we would be looking um, at the potential of additional work and how that would impact on his situation. Um, we would look at, we would try and discuss the housing options locally, but also being realistic in terms of what he would realistically get and what help he would get, which would be very little. Um, we would look at different ways of finding accommodation. We would go be referring for the advice element of the, um, the housing team. Um, either scenarios, um, either all scenarios where we were looking at the cost of travelling versus living somewhere else um, and the impact on caring responsibilities because sometimes the family as a whole, even when they're separated, can be even worse off if they move, move further afield. Tom and Jenny, this is the people that... Um, lost their tenancy, their shorthold tenancy. Um, it's very difficult for these clients. Um, we would explain the tenancy process. Unfortunately, they were already pretty aware of that. Um, we would be discussing um, their tenancy deposits, making sure they get as much back to avoid min um, deductions. 
We would be explaining the need to go to the eviction notice before they could show us homeless. Um, but we'd again be realistic to them in terms of what their income was and how vulnerable they would be perceived as, at the council. Um, we'd be looking at income maximisation to see if they can, that will help the process is, if necessary. This family was okay in that respect. Um, and we would be discussing availability of accommodation, which is tough. <coughs> okay, last one, Amy. Um, youth homelessness is a, is a, a real issue. Um, we will look at local agencies, for example, Open Door. Um, we would offer, a, with a lot, the demise of connections, we would try and do some um, liaison with the family if the child or teenager wanted it or young person wanted it. Um, we would check all the tick lists because we would, at this stage, she's 19, we would check everything to see if she was vulnerable or could be regarded as vulnerable in any way. Um, I think I read a statistic, 40% of young people that turn up as homeless um, are, have got some kind of history of abuse in their families. Um, we would um, obviously be working with the, the, ho the homelessness team, um, possibly. Um, we'd be looking at financial support, emergency financial support, where she was actually sleeping that night. Um, um, the other parts of the families we'd be contacting to see if we can get spaces for her. Um, we would be looking and discussing things like health, addiction, abuse issues to identify vulnerabilities. Um, we would be liaising with colleges because they often have welfare teams to make sure that they're aware. Um, and actually quite a lot of kids get kicked out because criminality. Um, and some, sometimes we do link with solicitors on those elements as well. So, what happened? Okay, Emma and Mark. That was the couple that didn't have any money. Um, after lots of discussion, they decided they didn't want to go through the eviction process. Um, they upped and moved out the area. Chris um, ended up on a shared house. It's not going to last. It's a short-term fix. Um, not great, but he still sees his family. Tom and Je Jenny, um, they did go to the council. They earned too much money. Um, they are renting again. They don't want to rent. I think 87, I heard your comment, but I think 87% of people in rented accommodation. I don't know where I get the stats from. I'm sorry. It's, maybe yeah, you can help. But I heard that 87% of the people in rented accommodation, if they had the option, would choose to buy. Um, now, that's not necessarily going to be a practicality, but most people would choose to buy. Um, and for Amy, she's in a homeless hostel. Um, going forward, um, the situation, if you read my note, um, the situation for anyone with money issues is bleak. It's never been good and it's now worse. Uh, changes to tax credits, housing benefits and the freeze and working age uh, benefits levels will particularly hit families. Um, I'm waiting and crossing all fingers and toes that the government will decide to offset some of the announced changes on welfare reforms, particularly around the tax credits, um, it, but it will have a big impact on lower income families and unfortunately the District Council and CAB will see that through our doors. Um, my final slide, we do do quite a lot, we do lot more debt work, 
We do an awful lot of benefit work, but we do do housing issues. Um, that's uh, 214 households rather than people that we've helped. But there's actually more than that because we do an awful lot of preventative work. We, our sole, uh, one of our key aims is to not even get to the housing issues because if we can avoid it by dealing with money issues, uh, we will do. So I do believe for the amount of de debt work we do, that stops a lot of people coming to the doors in the first place. But I hope that was helpful. Thank you. Thanks to Judith and Kate for that. I think it's often useful to see individual stories, I think, as... as part of the bigger picture. Um, okay, if we could break for coffee now. I'm, uh, as I said, I'm conscious of the time, so perhaps if we could just have a 10-minute break and try to get back here just after uh, 11.30, and then we'll try and get back um, on, on schedule during the rest of the day. Thank you. Slipping all the time. I know, but... Often happens. Yeah. It's partly my fault, and then Martin and yeah, yeah. Well, the trouble is, is that, um, and like, um, Mr. Freeman asking a question on that. Actually, that's not. I shouldn't have had any questions. No. At that point. Just no. Said, like, if you want to talk to him. Yeah, because that's.
Okay, if we can if we can reconvene please. Thank you all for coming back so promptly. Helps with the timetable. Um, I'd like to now welcome Susanna Westwood and Diane Young, who are going to talk about um, the challenges delivering for vulnerable people. Susanna. No, just press the red button. Okay, thank you for inviting me today to speak, um, to talk with you. Uh, many years ago I had a desk in this office in the early days of supporting people, so it's not an unfamiliar place for me to come back to. Um, I've got a background in specialist housing, supported housing and housing for vulnerable people across the piece, having worked for housing associations and local authorities and increasingly with the third sector and the arms house sector. Um, Diane, who's going to be sharing the presentation with me, is the housing brokerage manager for the new housing brokerage service that Essex introduced. Um, I was part of introducing it when I worked for Essex County Council three or four years ago and we piloted it and it's now gone county-wide with a range of different groups accessing the uh, service. I'm going to be really quick because I'm needing to try and make up some time for the day. So I'm going to look quickly at setting the scene, which seems to be the phrase for everybody. And again, I'm not going to be giving much good news either. Um, what's been happening? How we can, can we overcome the challenges? And examples of new ways of working. But in the workshop at after lunch that I'm going to be doing, or was it before lunch? It's before lunch, is it? Before lunch, you have an opportunity to talk to me about specifics because there's not going to be any detail in here. But I'm around at lunchtime, and there are a number of good things happening around the country. Um, it's just how you translate them into your local um, situation. We all know that we're in the housing sector's got less opportunity, there's less grants around for specialist housing, supported housing, there's not enough money and that opportunity around for general needs housing, how on earth are we going to support the more vulnerable people who have even less opportunity? We know development costs have increased considerably just over the past couple of years and welfare reform, well I'm not going to labour the point because all the other speakers have talked about it. Um, the County Council is looking to reduce the numbers of vulnerable people living in registered care. That is a given. There are pressures on DFGs, uh, Disabled Facilities Grants. There's the rent reductions. We're not quite sure how the impact of that is going to have on the specialist supported housing. They're saying the 1% isn't applying, is applying, but there's no guidance out yet on that. Um, the right to buy is going to impact, as Colin said, and there isn't enough stock. The employment support allowance and PIP that Colin had on the bottom of one of his slides, increasingly we're seeing people with learning disabilities, low to moderate, being sanctioned uh, because of their non-compliance with benefits. They're expecting people with a low-level learning disability to attend interviews. If they do not have good reading and writing skills, if they do not use, know how to use public transport effectively, they don't turn up for meetings. If they don't turn up for meetings, they get sanctioned. If they get sanctioned, they haven't got enough money. They haven't got enough money to feed themselves, etc. It's quite simple, really. Um, who are the vulnerable people? Older people, learning disability, physical disability, mental health, homelessness, domestic abuse, all of the sectors that Judith talked about. What are the benefits of specialist housing? Why does the local authority, why does your social care authority 
want to have more people in housing and less people in registered care. It can delay, it can deter, and it can stop costs on the acute sector. It can cost, stop costs on the hospital sector, and it can prevent people going into registered care. Registered care is not necessarily a great option for anybody. They have a room that's between 12 and 14 square metres, and if they're lucky, they have an ensuite. That's not particularly a way that most people would want to live, whether you're a 25-year-old with a learning disability, somebody with mental health issues, or an older person. People who live in their own community, who live in their own homes, have less mental health issues due to social isolation and they're able to access personalised support. They don't have to have the same that the neighbour has. They can choose who comes in, who's going to give them their care. But we know there's this massive pressure on supply. There's an increasing older people, but there's increasing numbers of people with long-term conditions. Although life expectancy has really increased over the past few years, healthy life expectancy hasn't and one in five adults has a disability that they declare. The tenure balance is changing, but we've also got a number of older people who are owner-occupiers who went through the right to buy many years ago and purchased their homes. They actually do not necessarily have enough income upon which to maintain that home or adapt that home or live in it in an accessible way. They may have big gardens that they can't maintain, but they want to stay in their home. So helping people stay in their homes is a, local, a social care aspiration. All of the policy is around enabling more people to stay in their own home for longer, which then stops them presenting at social care and the health sector. Social care has had massive change, and we know that they are under increasing pressure on budgets. Local authority social care budgets are not necessarily reducing, but they're having to do far more with less money. They're looking for budget efficiencies and what they're calling defining demand management. Demand management means stopping people coming into the front door or stopping them at the front door and signposting them, giving them information and advice, deterring them from seeking services because the services that can be provided from a social care budget are far less than they were 10 years ago. The commissioning approach to contracting. Local authorities used to commission and buy a block and they'd buy 20 of those and 20 of those. They're looking to commission for outcomes and the outcomes are measurably, measuring the impact that that intervention has had, not necessarily the number of hours that's been put in. There's a duty on councils under the CARE Act to join up care and support with health and housing where this delivers better care and promotes well-being. There's a duty on councils, I'm talking about local um, social care authorities, to ensure there's a wide range of care and support services available that enable people to choose the care and support services they want and to prevent and delay the need for care. That's about working with the market, the care and support market. This is inextricably linked with the housing market. You cannot have a functioning care and support market if people don't have the right place to live to be able to receive that care and support. They've got a new duty to provide information and advice to all residents, not just those that receive care. This is a massive, because not very few people actually go to social care, but actually if social care now has to give information and advice to everybody, that's another raft of work they've got to do. The Care Act that was due to come in full next year, there are delays on the implementation, um, but there will be, which was around the cap on costs for eligible care needs. 
Some of you will remember that you were all going to be told that you would only ever spend a maximum of £72,000 for your care costs throughout your life with the Care Act. That has been delayed. The government feels it is potentially unaffordable at the moment, so watch this space as to whether it's going to come in. Social care markets, as I said, we used to have uh, block contracts. It's moving from a wholesale model of purchasing to a retail model, where you, the individual, are in control of what you buy and how you define your support. You may receive some money from social care to do that with, but actually you are able to go to the market and access those services yourself. Not everybody with a vulnerability is able to manage that themselves and needs support because they don't necessarily want to be employers and with all the employment duties that come with that and responsibilities. There's massively increased expectations from everybody within the vulnerable people sectors that I briefly alluded to earlier. People with a learning disability, the parents of youngsters with a learning disability, they have high expectations for their children now. They don't expect them not to be able to live independently. They expect them to leave home when they're 23 or 24 and have come back from college. Older people want to stay in their own home and they want to receive the appropriate support to stay in their own home. But what's available in the marketplace for them from, in housing terms? There's some McCarthy and Stone sort of housing. I know in Uttlesford there is a site for an extra care scheme that has not yet started. That is because the service model isn't necessarily fully formed, but the development costs, because it takes so long to develop an extra care housing scheme, have increased during the life of that project. So it still keeps going out of reach for affordability to develop. The local authorities identified the site, the HCA has put some money in, Essex County Council has put some money in, but still they can't potentially make that scheme stack up. But there is this expectation that the housing solutions will be out there to enable these vulnerable people to live in them. All of the previous speakers to me have said to you, the housing solutions aren't there. They don't exist at this point in time. So we need to be doing things radically differently if we can. Essex County Council, over the past few years, has put in capital investment into specialist housing for vulnerable people. It had a specific pot of money for learning disabilities that was £6 million over a period of three years. Unfortunately, they were unable to allocate all of that £6 million because the sites didn't come forward. The opportunities were not there to develop it. They put some money, grant funded some money for the extra care scheme here. But the availability of options for them to even put the capital into is very limited. They've got a public land project, which I'm not up to speed with, where they've been working with all the local authorities, police, fire, health, to identify where public land may be available that could be brought forward for housing need. They're looking at new partnerships. They're increasingly looking at the role of the private sector in delivering housing for vulnerable people. The issue is affordability, because we come back to your presentations, which is it has to be affordable, because Essex County Council will not, and hasn't to date, subsidised rents. It, they can't do it, they can't subsidise them in the longer term, so the, anything that they support to be developed by grant has to be affordable. But what is affordable? We don't even understand, after yesterday, what affordable means. And they're looking to reduce the number of admissions to registered care. They've done quite a lot of cost modelling on the costs of registered care and the costs of housing for vulnerable people. 
simply put, if housing costs less than registered care, why would you not want it? If housing is better than registered care for the individual and the individual's dignity and choice and health and well-being, why would you not want it? So increasingly, they are going to be looking to fish in the same pond as you are for housing in your area. The pace is very, very slow, but we need new service models to reflect how people want to live for the next 10, 20, 30 years. So how can we overcome the challenges? This is a challenge across the country. It's not just specific to this area. There's a number of excellent initiatives out there, but it requires really good partnerships. It requires everybody at the table. It requires masses of compromise. It requires expertise and input. And unfortunately, with everybody scaling back, there's not always enough time from any organisation to invest in that partnership in the right way at the beginning because sometimes it can take two, three, four years before you actually get a new scheme. An extra care scheme, generally from the first thought you might have had about it, would not open its doors for five years. To have a consistent group of people round the table responding to national policy, responding to welfare reform, responding to how it can be affordable, it's very hard as the sector changes. Collaboration and compromise, we need to share good practice, we need to share our knowledge and learning and we need to avoid duplicating each other's efforts. Nobody's got time to do that anymore. There's new service models out there and there's quite a few of them beginning to tweak out but you say these investment in time. You need a flexible workforce because historically the workforce that was social care, that was health, that was housing, they need to be able to cross-fertilise, they need to be able to talk each other's language or have an interpreter who can do that for them. Advice and information is vital because good advice and good information can sometimes stop, head things off at the pass. <coughs> you need to recognise as well the individual organisations in your partnerships, constraints and their decision-making processes. They'll all have some form of governance that they need to go through. So decisions are slow. Anything you can do to speed up decision-making at the beginning of a project or development can help smooth the path to actually getting it to come to fruition. So what do you need to do? You need to build local capacity, especially private landlords, because they are a massive pool of um, resource but clearly they need to make money, want to make money, but it's how they work in the sector, especially with specialist and supported housing. Diane's got a few examples of landlords who hold some significant stock who are happy to work with this sector because actually they're a stable group of people if their benefits remain stable. That is the biggest problem. Um, housing providers and local authorities need to establish different receptors relationships with the care, support and health sector. A number of housing associations have their own care and support delivery. That's fine. But a number of housing associations don't. Local authorities, many years ago, had quite a big role in delivering care, support and community services. And it may well be that local authorities need to consider whether they put in place a relationship with a care or support provider to provide some extra services to enable people to stay in their home, to reduce the moves. We need to enable services, but ensure that individual responsibility for funding. This retail to wholesale model, this change, they're blurred, the boundaries are now blurred on whose responsibility it is to pay. Home ownership for people with physical and learning disabilities 
has been happening. The Homes and Communities Agency has a pot of money called Hold that they have been providing grant for people to purchase their own homes. Essex has had quite significant success with Hold. I think over 20 to 30 people purchased their own home over the past two or three years under this scheme. They've got mortgages. Kent Reliance, I think, was the mortgage provider. So a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old with a long-term learning disability is living in their own home. They're not going to come back. They're there for life. We need a strategic approach to DFGs where possible, but it can't be adaptations at any cost. You're often adapting a property for an older person to stay there. Six months later, that property is no longer sustainable for them. That money, that grant money has been used to adapt the property, but it actually becomes a property that's then not in your cycle for another family to live there. If there were more suitable properties for older people to live in, then they wouldn't need the DFG. Remodelling of your sheltered stock. You've got some sheltered stock. You may need to think about remodelling, and I know you have considered this in the past. I know it's not a new idea for you. One of the, the role of the third sector, the armed houses have got quite a big movement across Essex at the moment and have set in place a charitable incorporated organisation that has within its objects the ability to develop and has got good relationships with funders, including the charity bank. It may well be you need to go slightly outside of the comfort of housing associations and move to the arms house sector or other charitable bodies. They're there for a different reason. At this point, they were exempt from the right to buy. I'm not sure if they are. It depends what's in the housing bill, if arms houses are. It's probably something you need to look at. Um, one of the models that an arms house have worked on recently was uh, there's a very small support being put in now, which is funded by the residents, which the arms house have got a relationship with the care provider. It's completely outside of social care contracting, and that's what needs to change. Um, so I'm racing through through quickly now, and I'm losing my breath. How many, how many minutes have I had so far? Uh, we need to move on. I need to move on. Okay. Um, the third sector funding is still precarious, though. We know that they have got reduced funding. And I'm now going to move on to Diane, who's going to talk about what and how housing brokerage has been developed in the county. Okay, so hopefully um, my presentation will be a little more upbeat. Um, so I'm going to talk about the um, housing brokerage service and um, what we do. So the aim is to provide a housing brokerage service to people with a wide range of needs across the 12 districts in Essex, which is not including Thurrock or Southend. We work with a range of people with disabilities, which include learning disability, physical and sensory impairment, mental health and or substance misuse dependencies including where there's a co-existing criminal justice issue. The specialist housing brokers support vulnerable people to find and access suitable housing. We're independent, which means we can work with the council, social workers, landlords and commissioners on behalf of the tenant. We support everyone through the process and we continue to offer support, advice and guidance at the start of the tenancy. We work with individuals and referring agents including the social and private housing sector and continue to build on the already established links. We provide a county-wide resource 
and from the onset we work closely with, with the referring agents to understand their expectations and requirements. There is no charge to the housing brokerage customers for this service. We focus on working with customers who are not successful on moving on with the support of their current providers and need additional expertise to achieve their goals. There's also a planned way of exiting the service and we work in partnership with the referral agency. So a case will only be closed due to successful move on to a direct tenancy or by agreement with the referring agent. So all of our referrals are made via the four mental health JRPs, specialist accommodation team for the learning disability and substance misuse referring agencies. All of our referrals must be working age adults with disabilities and or mental health needs and or substance misuse issues, including where there is a co-existing criminal justice issue. So we work with offenders with complex and additional needs. Priority is given to those people, including those with families, where the local authority does not have a duty to provide accommodation and who have multiple needs. So it could be people who are in crisis accommodation, um, people who are in bed and breakfast. Uh, they could be homeless or risk of homelessness, and they may be unable to be discharged from hospital. Um, they could also be unable to move from a supported housing or residential care setting without the additional intervention from our service. They may also be known to the criminal justice system. But just to be clear, we're not a crisis service. So if someone is going to be homeless within 24 hours, we cannot house them and we do not, ha do not hold housing stock. We will encourage referrers to refer people given as much time as possible and in a planned way. So partnership working. The success of the service is dependent on developing and sustaining excellent relationships with commissioners, referral agencies, clients, family, advocates and ensuring we have an open and honest line of communication. We cannot deliver this service on our own. So we also provide a tenancy sustainment service. Um, which provides a wide range of pract practical assistance, advice and information and community links. The services are designed to enable people to access a range of services within the community to help them stay and settle in their homes. The service helps people to develop their capacity to manage their own tenancies and access services themselves. So what does, it, what does tenancy support include? So we ensure that once suitable accommodation has been identified by the brokers, that the property is safe, secure and suitable in terms of location and cost. We provide support with tenancy sign-up and tenancy responsibilities. We assist to cl claim any welfare benefits and provide advice and advocacy to include housing repairs, access to health services and community care. We provide assistance with moving in, so there may be an individual who doesn't have any furniture or basic household appliances and we, we, we may refer them to the, private, uh, to the voluntary sector furniture projects. We, support we, we provide support to connect with utilities, develop budget skills and other skills to manage a tenancy. We also provide social and emotional support, which is through listening and responding to their identified needs and strengthening, strengthening relationships with families. We also provide resettlement, moving on or securing direct tenancies. 
So, why does housing brokerage work? I'm going to go through a case study. Um, we had a referral uh, to the housing brokerage for a young couple. They'd formed a relationship whilst in residential care setting and they wanted to live together as a couple. And with the support of the social worker, this was agreed as a way forward. The broker identified a private rental flat. He negotiated an, a rent to an affordable rate with the landlord and then the broker worked with a social worker to identify a suitable care provider. Once the support plan was validated and the couple were able to move into their new home. So why does brokerage work? Well, the couple's health and well-being had increased dramatically. They were able to have choice and control over where they, had, they, over where they lived. They were able to have their own front door and be part of a community. A year on and they are still living together. They have, ha they have not been without their ups and downs, but their no relationship is. So, as an added bonus, the net saving to Essex was £184,000 per year, year on. So, positive outcomes are being achieved, despite the demand for social and private housing, which is increasing. People are leaving long-stay hospitals and residential care to be more independent and involved in their community. Finding the right home can increase choice and control and cut support costs, but it can also be a complicated process. And our housing brokerage service is very person-centred. We put the person being supported to move home at the centre of our work. We have an excellent success rate, and in 2014, we had two brokers who housed 48 people from the Learning Disability Service alone. Our first contract with Essex saw, Essex pay, saw, with Essex saw it paying for itself seven times over in the first financial year. This was before considering ongoing life, lifetime cost savings, which clearly shows the personal benefits for those who now live in their own home and financial benefits for the care providers. Thank you. It will be around sort of lunchtime if anyone would like to ask questions about the service. Thank you to uh, Susanna and uh, Diane for that. I think big emphasis there on partnership working and effective working with the private sector as well. Uh, I think the question about um, almshouses is an interesting one because um, I mean, I've certainly managed almshouses in the past. There are 1,700 almshouse associations across the country. Some of them are registered as charities, some are registered with the HCA, others not. But I think it's worth looking at them if you have almshouses in the district because I wasn't convinced in the past that they're always uh, meeting the, the greatest housing needs and they tend to have historic charters and um, assessments of need which uh, might be worth uh, looking at. Anyway, we'll move on. It's now Marcus Watts is going to talk about decent, safe and healthy homes. And I've, uh, I've run out of time already. You I? have, yeah, I'm afraid. <laughs> right, um, so five points. Well, yeah. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, right, um, so yeah, my talk is really <coughs> talking about the context of environmental health, uh, the links between health and housing. Um, I'm going to go on. I was going to rattle on for a while, actually, but uh, you know, I have sent people to sleep before, so. You know, the time, I'm going to go quite quickly. So I'm going to talk about the, uh, what we're doing and the, what we are looking at, how we, we're going to change us. Uh, and just different things, really, in respect because we're primary regulators. 
Um, this um, environment health, for those people who don't know, we're split into two teams. One's a commercial team dealing with food-related matters, commercial-related problems. Um, I uh, have the privilege of dealing with the environment protection team, and we deal with all this sort of stuff. So we deal with the air quality, the tamil land, pollution, uh, uh, prescribed process, pollutant activities, um, nuisances, accumulation. So we're very much uh, protecting your environment. Uh, and in doing so, try linking in with the health and well-being agenda. The, the final uh, few points there I've, I've got in bold now are, are relating to the housing functions that we do uh, deal with. Um, generally speaking, housing complaints and disrepair come from the private rented sector, and that accounts to for about 15% of our service requests. But we deal with a lot more. We deal with uh, problems with hoarding and, and filthy environments premises. I'll go into them in a minute. We administer disabled facilities grants that have a budget of around 200 plus thousand pounds to deal with those to make sure that people can stay safe and well within the the disabled people can stay safe and well within their homes and not go out of risk, um, go to, to care homes. We provide uh, a small amount of home repairs assistance for the, the most vulnerable people for essential repairs. We also do mobile homes licensing. We license houses in multiple occupations. Um, uh, uh, and uh, occupation, and we also deal with um, we're the ones that bring return empty homes into use. And I think in the last year and a half, uh, we've, we've brought in about 160 homes back into use from our direct intervention. So the the, the basics of what we deal with, the nuts and bolts for everyday sort of stuff we deal with, are, are, are there really. Mm. You know, prizes for spotting the dog. Um, but essentially, we deal with all the problems in the uh, district in respect of housing. Uh, and we see them quite a lot. So um, the housing just repair, people come to us when they've exhausted all sort of avenues with their landlords. And they'll be fairly desperate for dealing with certain, uh, to resolve some of their problems. They will come to us and we will get involved. And uh, we will take enforcement action where it's required. Um, but sometimes as well, you know, that some people uh, have got mental health issues as well. Uh, they could be owner-occupiers. They have, they've, they've lost uh, their, uh, you know, all sense of reason. And, you know, we've, we've been in houses where they've not had water for a decade or two. They're defecating in the corner of the room. They are pretty horrendous places. So we get to see all those lovely uh, situations. So... Just going back to the links between housing and health, we, we tend to, it's a very complicated uh, cause of events and hazards that uh, can be associated with the, the links here. This, this is a bit tenuous in a way, but it, it does sort of seem to link together issues with respect to community stability, health care, environmental issues, crime disorder and, and cleanup costs. So I think it's quite good to illustrate that. But really, um, Hazards between uh, associated with housing. I mean, we, we all know about the state of well-being and your, your mental state from living in poor accommodation. We know about issues with cold and homes. We know that, for instance, uh, where was I? I was looking at about 18,000 people die from excess winter deaths a few years ago, and about 14,000 of those were attributed to those over 75, and Mark Wilson does an awful lot of work, and, and so does Kate um, in respect of that. Um, so, but 
the hazards, there's about 29 hazards that we tend to focus on. Um, so just to put it in context and how important housing is on health and accidents, this, this slide just, just gives you some sort of comparison. So it, it demonstrates that in the home, uh, there are more deaths associated with accidents in the home than at the, on the road and at work combined. Um, and if I just move, move it on swiftly, if we look at the costs of poor housing, so associated with the, the BR, the British Research Establishment has done an awful lot of work in respect of determining an evidence-based approach associated with the type of housing and the, like, the type of defects with, with housing and what the costs associated with that to the NHS and to the wider society. And you can see there, and this, is, this has been uh, validated, well, it's an estimate, but it, it is considered to be reasonably reliable that the uh, costs to the NHS are similar to you know, other main you know, physical activity and smoking. So we do start needing to, you know, there is a, uh, is a chain of thought that we need to do more proactive stuff, more proactive intervention, to improve uh, housing conditions. So, so where are the problems? Um, the private rental sector is probably the, one of the most unregulated sectors in housing, um, and the non-decent home tests seem to indicate that, although it's, it's improving, that still, approximately in 2009, this is about 41% of all private rental sector dwellings uh, didn't meet the non-decent homes uh, um, criteria. So, so where are we coming from at the minute? Well, we, we are trying to look at ways, we're regulators, so we react to complaints and problems. Um, but we think using our powers in the Housing Act, and we do possess an awful lot of powers to remedy problems, we think we could change our focus a bit. Uh, and we are. This is the um, this is the health and well-being framework that uh, sort of, in terms of public health, people are working to. Um, and we think that we fit quite well in three of those domains: there, for health improvement, health protection, keeping people at home, remedying problems that uh, 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 defects or uh, associated problems with landlords, um, to make sure that. Um, we have an overall improvement to the housing spectrum. Um, and in light of the CARE Act that came in, there was a MOU to uh, improve health through home. And pretty much everybody signed up to this. The NHS, local government associations, charges to environment health. A lot of people have, 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 have done this because they recognise the need to keep people in their homes and, and for those homes to be safe. So. There's a lot of work that's going on, and we think we sh can fit in with that. So, uh, challenges facing UDC, I mean, you know, everyone thinks UDC is great, and we do too, but the, the, the problem is we see the opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, we don't see the nice places, I always see the bottom places. So, um, you know, and to give you the analogy here, that you could have certain extremes, but you could still be, uh, you know, average or in the case of what's better than <laughs> better than average in many cases. 
So we're now looking at different ways of working and, and generally speaking we do sort of march to the beating government drum where there's a problem, they're putting legislation, they've, uh, they force us to do something about it and we, we react accordingly. Um, and my slide at the beginning did indicate all the statutory functions with respect to air quality, contaminant land, nuisance, public health, all those, all those public health complaints that we deal with are statutory requirements placed upon us by central government. But now there's a, there's a view that we should look at an evidence-based approach, look at a view of how we can improve proactively people's public health. And we are thinking that we, we, we do know we, we, the JSNA is building up a lot of evidence on, on potential problems. We have powers to deal with them. We're looking at the solutions. We're going to try and look at monitoring those solutions and, and hopefully feedback. So there's, there's a loop to improve health and well-being for, for vulnerable people within the borough. So this is our, what, this is what our, our team environment health looks like at the minute, all of it's focused on public health, but in the main, most of it's reaction, uh, reactive. Um, so we are looking at now sort of proactive intervention measures. Now to do that, we made a start at that by, by commissioning the British Researchers Establishment to, um, to provide us with housing stock profiles. We have now got uh, information, uh, and this is a modelling information, which takes into account an awful lot of data on individual household properties, uh, the types of problems with those properties. We can overlay that issue with, uh, overlay that detail with the type of pe the people who live there, their economic situation, and we can cross-reference it with benefits and, and identify where the problems are within the borough. So if we decide, and this is what we're looking at doing, to target particular hazards, particular problems, whether it could be force or slips or trips, or if it could be particular cold homes in partnership with Mark and Kate, we can do that and we can target that we, can, we should be able to do it in a fairly organised and targeted fashion. So this just gives you an indication of where the category one hazards are. Um, which is the most serious hazards where normally they're actionable with respect to the legislation that we enforce. Um, and we can zoom in. We can zoom in on ward and property level on, in respect of that. So how do we compare? Right, well, we are not looking as rosy as what people think. And maybe it's, probably, it's, it's no surprise. It's possibly because we have such an old housing stock. But um, you can see that Category 1 hazards are associated with those 29 hazards that I mentioned earlier on. They're, they are formed out of an assessment uh, being the most serious threat to, to, to persons' public, public health. There are four categories, so these are definitely the most serious ones. Um, and that gives you an indication of the, the, some of the problems that we've got. Now, using that information, what we can do now is we can put a cost to those hazards. So, the cost to remedy those hazards. And we've done a bit of work and we've got a bit of information to allow us to suss out the cost of poor housing and, in other words, equate our intervention costs to the overall benefit to the NHS. And we do that by uh, getting your hazard. We now we can calculate the expected annual cost to the NHS from those hazards. Some 
some 9,000 in the district. I believe it was calculated to attribute to something like 280 medical interventions a year as a result from poor housing in the district. So now we can take those 280 interventions and we can calculate what the costs of the works are to remedy those interventions and give it a payback period. So, it looks, so we can therefore justify certain proactive intervention techniques that we're considering. So to give you an example, you might, uh, you know, there might be an issue with sort of falls. We can find out where vulnerable people are we, uh, through um, a variety of different data sources. We can find out where the type of property and the type of properties that may be associated with those falls. And we can have a targeted campaign just to deliver on falls. Um, and really, the costs of the work out Stick to the benefit of the NHS of someone falling, particularly uh, someone vulnerable, um, could be quite little and short. Whereas conversely, some things are a bit more difficult, sort of cold homes that's quite a large expense and the payback period could be quite lengthy. So uh, so at the minute we, we are looking at, we're trying to change our, our, our tack to this. We're trying to take a different view to the work that we undertake. Um, and as part of that we're, we're looking at finding out where the evidence is, looking at where the problems are, we're looking at uh, enhancing the JSA, and um, finding out where, where within the authority, who does uh, all the organisations or the social care services, who does what, and trying to knit it all together so we can tap into that some way. Um, and if, if we can't tap into that, we're going to try and consider applying for funding for specific campaigns, provided we can demonstrate the evidence line that we can actually have a, a, a meaningful outcome. So, uh, you know, in the context of things, 15 minutes in, <laughs> this is what we need to do. We all need to look at this. This is the public health context. Um, we need to... Uh, you know, it's all about tackling health inequalities and assisting a lot of the vulnerable in society. Um, but we need to recognise people living longer, and but not necessarily better. Um, the current system is not sustainable. The reactive system is not sustainable. Everybody's been talking about this today. Um, prevention is better, always better than core cure. Uh, we need to look at all the proactive intervention measures we can, we can deal with as public health officials try to improve circumstances for our residents um, and work in partnership with everybody else. So that was a, a very brief talk about a uh, little short brief run through of what I was about to say. Thanks anyway, very much. Have a talk about any questions. Thanks very much uh, for that, Marcus. The, the slides are all going to be sent out, apparently, so that, that massively complicated slide will, will, you'll be able to study in your own time. Um, if you do have any questions for Marcus, he, he will be around, I think, yeah. over, over lunch and so on. Um, so now we've got time for the workshops. We Cunningly, we did uh, allow an hour for the workshops, but realised we'd only need 45 minutes for them. So, you know, we're back, back completely on schedule. Um, it's a chance for you to, to talk to each other in a more a smaller group and to 
talk through some of the issues that you've heard about this morning uh, and then report back after lunch. Um, and Suzanne, each of you has a badge with a colour coding on it, so Suzanne's going to tell you where to go now and then lunch at one o'clock. Thank you. Right. Okay. If you've got a red circle on your badge, you're going with Martin to John's office. So if Martin, if you could stand up. Anybody with a red circle, going with Martin. Red circle. Red circle. If you've got a yellow square, you're going with Judith. <coughs> yellow square with Judith. If you've got a red oblong, you're with Sanna, and you're going in that room here, just through there, yeah. Red oblong, that's, that's a rectangle, old-fashioned word. Red, red oblong in that room there. Chairman's office. Yeah. Right, if you've got a light blue triangle, you're in here with Nigel. This is Nigel. Hand up. Okay. That's me. And if you've got a dark blue dot, you're with Marcus. So, Marcus, you want to take your team to the side somewhere? Marcus, over here. Yeah. Okay.
Just in case. <laughs> just in case people feel aggrieved about being cut short. Okay. Right. <coughs> Uh, welcome back, everyone. Thank you all for coming back uh, promptly at quarter two. I uh, hope you had a good lunch. We, what we're going to do now is ask each of the um, workshop scribes to come up and just give a, a two or three minute presentation on the key points arising from their sessions, uh, just to say what the question was that they were looking at and what the um, possible solutions might be. So I don't know who we have first. Um, Judith? <laughs> no, it's still writing. <laughs> Any volunteers? What, what is this uh, Nigel, you prepared to? Yeah, if you just stand up and address the room, that would be good. Yeah, I did, I, we haven't done a um, sheet, and I think we'll probably find out we're the only ones who didn't do a sheet. Um, well... I don't follow the crowd, you see. Um, for everyone who doesn't know me, I'm Nigel Brown, I'm development manager here dealing with the development control end of things. Um, and also I'm a, um, a trustee on the Community Land Trust uh, from where I live, Wales, in Cambridgeshire. And the approach that we, the whole of our workshop was based upon community-led schemes, especially around, CL, around Community Land Trust specifically as a, as a tool. Um, a lot of the discussion that we had was around right to buy, um, you know, the fact that the CLTs is one of those elements which, fingers crossed, may end up being um, exempt from the right to buy. We just don't know that. We don't know where that's going, um, but we just don't know. Um, but it's not all about right to buy. We shouldn't go into CLTs simply because it's, it gets you out of the right to buy clause, if you like. Um, it's all about community-led planning. Um, community, it has to be led by the community, the community feeling that there are certain issues within their, within, the, um, within their community, could be a parish, the one I'm involved in is two parishes, um, it has a particular need, it has particular issues within the village, it may not just be housing, but housing may be a way to solve that particular problem, in our particular village it was, we wanted market dwellings, we wanted affordable housing, we've got surgery issue, um, we've got a cemetery issue, all those type of things were all thrown in together. Um, and so therefore it became a community-led one. Each one is different, um, and it's based upon, a, um, based upon his Kansas policy, which is basically throws all that hat into the CLT. CLT was the way to do it, and that's the policy-led. I would say that's not necessarily the right approach. The right approach with CLT is, is one of those tools, just like the section sites, just like um, sales is a way of providing this, and CLT is a toolkit for that. And each one's different. Each one is specifically different, because each community is slightly different. And when the group had... Quite a lot, we had, we had a mixed group, and I think there was quite a lot of slight anxiety within the group in terms of crumbs. This is just another group of people, the same old suspects maybe in a, in a group, in terms of needing the energy to actually do that. You know, people usually get people in the same group. That's not necessarily the case with CLT. The initial energy to get going may be the same, same suspects, maybe a few people on the parish council, the local member, or whatever. But quite often, once you get a community land trust, involved, you do a check within your village and you suddenly find you've got assets within your village, you know, other planners just happen to live in the village and believe it or not, planners can be assets somewhere. And so that's where, <laughs> so actually, you know, that, that actually helped within the community. And so therefore that how, that's how we brought it forward. But the community land trust, the clues in the title, trust is what it's all about. So you're doing things slightly differently, 
and as a local authority, you need to be having trust in your CLTs to actually do it because you're actually allowing them to get on with it. You're not necessarily the authority can't the, the authority can be proud that they're allowing these community land trusts to work, but they're not part of it necessarily. They're not part of it actually happening. And I think there was quite a lot of disconnect in terms of within the group. What's the local authority's role? The local authority's role is you let it happen. And you, you know, you trust your community to actually do that. Um, my experiences in the CLTs that we dealt with, quite often you have problems when you've got the, the traditional professional people that usually deal with land issues, things like solicitors, planners, housing officers. They don't, it's not the norm, so therefore it's very uncomfortable for them. The amount of difficulty in terms of our CLT, for instance, they even set up a bank account. It's just a different way forward. But there's a bigger support network going on it. The other issue, one of the other questions coming out of the group is what's in it? What's in it for the community? Well, why is this any different to an exception house scheme or a, or, a, or a planning application that's gone through with a lot of community goodies involved? The problem is that the community can actually get assets from it. You know, the community actually owns some of the houses on the site, and from that asset, you can actually bear, you can actually uh, borrow against those particular assets. For instance, you could actually, if you've got a problem with your village shop, or a problem with your pub, or problem with, or other issues going on within the village, it's an asset. It's not just housing, it's an asset as well, so therefore there could be quite a lot of coming out as well. And I, I emphasise again, it's not one size fits all. So I think <coughs> that did cover everything. Oh, I don't know where Julie's gone now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I think that covered everything within our group in terms of what actually happened. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Susanna, are you ready? Registered care and the role of registered care going forward. 
um, and that registered care is still an option for the most vulnerable and the most dependent and the most challenging. But even when people move to registered care, it needs to move to what's available for them in the future. And again, we come back to the issue of well, what's available, where they want to live, where their families live. There's something about your, your homelessness strategy and about how you developed your own bespoke, and I'm not going to call it brokerage because the group didn't want to call it brokerage, um, service that you initiated working with private landlords in a different way to how you traditionally work with private landlords to encourage them to participate. Private landlords need to trust you, they need to have a named person, they need to understand what you want, and that takes time to build those relationships. We've recognised how time poor every organisation is to do this blank piece of paper free thinking. But within our group was the volunteer coordinator, Izzy, um, and you've got a pool of volunteers here who actually bring with them quite a lot of skills, and it may be instead of them doing task orientated things that you want them to do. It may well be about um, asking a group of them who bring some skills to the table to sit with that blank piece of paper and to give it some critical thinking, give it some time. Because they're not going to be constrained by public sector thinking or constrained by what's gone on before. They may well bring something fresh. They may not be able to carry it forward. Um, they may need resources to do that. But actually there are You've got a massive pool in this district of volunteers. It's well known countrywide how many you've got and what they bring for you. Um, the general consensus was without the right people around the table, without housing, health and social care there at the right time and in the right situations. And that went through from the operational one individual issue that you've got right the way through to how you work strategically and build and develop things that are sustainable for five or ten years. Getting people to sit together is a real challenge. But one of the overriding things is whenever any initiative comes forward is remember that there are lifetime costs. So you may be reactive, but actually if you can start thinking about the lifetime costs of that initiative, it makes it look slightly different on your budgeting and on your forecasting, but what the implications are further down the line. Um, the lack of statutory resources has definitely generated a greater number of individuals at crisis state rather than prevention. So you need to try and swing the ometer um, the other way. Um, there's some specific issues about social care not engaging, not engaging in a consistent way, not engaging consistently with the same staff, so you ended up with this very stop-start um, engagement. <coughs> Care Act and the implications of the Care Act are relevant to every individual and to every authority and you may need to think about how you bring Care Act training back in once they've started rolling it out again. Um, because ultimately everybody around the table wanted to maximise vulnerable people's options to live independently with dignity so that they could actually be truly independent. Thank you. Next up, we've got Judith. Um, right, we were looking at how can the council address the welfare changes affecting those on low incomes to ensure that homelessness does not increase. So, nothing difficult there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we sort of didn't talk specifics generally. We talked a lot more about the sort of the cultural change or the changes that need to happen to 
for the, for the outcomes that we want. And um, I mean, the only one specific area we looked at was sort of downsizing and encouraging the, to continue encourage downsizing because obviously of the welfare changes and getting people in the right size properties that they can afford. So, I mean, obviously the council does have a policy on that and it does have um, incentives to do that, but obviously it's not the same across all the housing associations as well. So that was sort of one area. We then were looking um, and talking about how there probably needs to be more partnership working between authorities um, going forward and joint commissioning of services because obviously as Uttlesford is uh, you know, a small rural authority we have problems but we don't necessarily have the volume of problems to want the specific services built within Uttlesford on its own because we wouldn't be able to fill a unit for this particular thing or that particular thing so we need to be looking and talking to our neighbouring authorities and Essex about how services can be provided that, that Uttlesford has access to um, to help us solve the problems that we do have. But, you know, on the understanding that we will sort of take responsibility for those people when they're ready to be living independently again. But I think it's, it's that type of work that we need to do. Otherwise, we're never going to have the right sort of resources for all the people that we see. Um, Another issue, obviously, we were talking about um, how we were going to provide social or have enough social housing and more affordable housing in the, in the district with all the changes going on. So there was very keen that we should be lobbying and everybody really should be lobbying to make sure that we keep money from any sales in Uttlesford to put back into housing in Uttlesford and, and not house people and you know, have housing in Yarmouth. Um, that money should stay locally. So it was a kind of everybody, various agencies around the table said we all need to be lobbying. It's not just down to the local authority. Other people who have a vested interest locally need to be lobbying to make their voices heard, the charitable sector, the CAB, you know, whoever, um, if we want to sort of make things happen and, and make a difference. Um, I talk again with, uh, about having... Um, you know, with this question of sales locally and keeping that money, if the housing associations, have, again, have got money, having a memorandum of understanding with some of our partner housing associations about what they do with that fund and whether we can get them to at least agree that they will provide housing locally again. You know, it, so conversations need to happen in various arenas. Um, we also talked about having suitable advice services suitably funded. Um, it's a question of, in, um, sort of, in, sort of investing for early inter, an early intervention to try and prevent homelessness. Obviously, prevention is better than cure, as we've said on very many issues here this, today. Um, and I think, obviously, advice, suitable advice services, good advice services, um, having people who you know, you, you know where to go to for your debt advice, or whether it's mental health issues, um, debt support, domestic violence support, all those things. If, if you can maybe get services in early, then you may prevent the homelessness happening further down the line. So, again, it's, it's working together to make sure that people have access to what they need. Um, and I think that was the sort of the main discussion around the table, or what we all sort of recognise is that it is down to partnership working. We haven't all got the resources to solve all the problems ourselves as individual organisations, and only by working together will we really solve, you know, provide a holistic solution to some of the people that we see um, in the different agencies. So we're lucky in Uttlesford, I think, you know, I feel when I go around to other authorities and to have conversations, I realise that not every area has the same 
partnership working that we have in this area. We are lucky. We know who our partners are. We do have those personal relationships with people, so it does make it easiest for us to do that. We get on well with our CAB. We have arguments occasionally over certain cases, but we get on the phone and we resolve them. Other authorities don't have that luxury, and so I think we need to make use of those partnerships. Um, you know, with Family Mosaic, with the Domestic Violence Service, build on those relationships because that is really the only way we are going to, to, to solve, have any hope of solving these sort of problems as we go forward. Uh, who's next up? We should have two more. Yes, yes. Is it Marcus? Yeah. <laughs>
Who's the last one? Is me. Oh, John. Um, I, I wasn't the leader of this group, but I, uh, uh, I was a scribe, but my writing is so awful that I offered to uh, sum up on behalf of the group. We did go off piste a bit because we were a bit shell-shocked, I think, at the news around housing, but we did come back onto it. And what we were asked to look at was, as work on the local plan progresses, the council are looking, it says, the council is looking, is right, at the distribution of homes. If a new settlement was identified, what issues might arise with a large number of homes in one place, and how could you ensure that a sustainable community is created? Well, that's sort of, we've been doing that the last eight years. Um, and uh, <laughs> quite simply... Uh, the issues that might arise with a large number of homes in, the right, in one place are are we meeting the needs of the, housing dis- of the housing needs of the district by putting everybody in one location or should we be looking at a more dispersed answer? And secondly, um, you know, are you going to get the affordable housing that you need on stream in time? Because there's a phasing issue here. Um, it will take a long time to bring a single settlement forward, whereas um, a dispersed settlement as first strategy can be done straight away. So what the answer is, we will do uh, as we progress through the current consultation process of the local plan. There is no easy answer to this. The, a single settlement is good because you know, you know where everything is and everything is concentrated in one place. You can get the economies of scale to get the infrastructure that you need. The downside of it is you're going to wait five to ten years before it comes on stream and starts to, to work. So what do you do in the meantime? And um, that would be someone else's problem, I'm happy to say. Uh, because for those who don't know, I shall be retiring at the end of the year. Um, which is a great shame. And... Uh, <laughs> We're also asking um, well, two other questions here. What other services and facilities should be provided and how can the council ensure the affordable housing is available for those most in need? Well, taking that last point first, we're going to really struggle with that now and I shall come on to that as I sum up because um, I think there's, there's some, a real sea change happening around the government approach to affordable housing and meeting housing need and we need to look at that very carefully, especially mainstream housing um, and other services and facilities. Well, that depends on the size of your settlement. If you go for something the size of Harlow, I'm not saying you should, but with plenty of room, um, you know, Harlow is only the size of the Samfords in terms of area, so just think of these things. Uh, um, You'd create a town centre that would probably compete a bit with Saffron, Walden and Dunmow and it might ruin the rest of the district. So you need to be very careful about what you do. And I'm not suggesting we do build another Harlow because I don't live here. But, uh, um, you know, this is all a matter of balance. You need the services and facilities that the the, the new settlement can support. (laughs) There's only so much value in the land that can generate the need and this is one of the reasons we've been looking at uh, what Nigel was talking about and also through the, the Garden Cities approach, whether there is any additional value you can get out of the land to actually create a more stronger social infrastructure as well as the physical infrastructure that we, we are more, more accustomed to through the, through the planning process. That's more or less where we got. We did talk about an awful lot of other things, but um, so did you all. And so uh, we'll probably leave <coughs> anything else I've missed, Martin. I'll probably leave it there. Thank you all very much. Thanks, John. We have uh, four minutes precisely before John is going to sum up. So I wondered if there are any burning questions that anyone has for any of the speakers or any of the key points that have come out today. If not, I'll ask John to 
carry on. I think all the speakers are still here, so if there is anything you'd like to talk to them about, you can nobble them after uh, the meeting. No? Nothing? Okay. Well, thank you very much all for coming. I hope you found it useful. I hope you've learned a few things and also had uh, picked up on a few things that can uh, help you to think about the future and the challenges that lie ahead. But uh, I'll ask John now to sum up. Thank you very much, Colin. Firstly, thank you very much for chairing this meeting and thank to everyone who was involved in its preparation and uh, all the speakers as well. It's been a really, really interesting morning, day, because it's so different to what we thought we would be talking about about six months ago, I think. So uh, thank you all very much and thank you all for coming as well. Um, I've been making a few notes on this wonderful device um, as we've been going on. We have seen in the last, well, since the election, a real major change in housing policy. And the emphasis is now on enabling property ownership rather than enabling homes to rent. And there's been a big shift in government policy on that. And um, the, the government is moving away from supporting the rented sector to providing a discount for starter homes. But even that is a very narrow band. It's for the under 40 first time buyer. No one else. So it's an extraordinary uh, limited scope for where government is going to get involved in housing. And I think this is, uh, this is a bit of personal philosophy or John Mitchell's take on this, it's not uh, anybody else's, but I don't think the government actually sees a role for the state now in the provision of rented housing other than for people who are in extreme need. And so if you take that premise, and there's no reason why not to, because um, if you read the Conservative Manifesto, which I, I've read all the parties' manifestos, one does in this sort of line of work, then, um, then, uh, then, then that's, that's reasonable. Uh, if you're rolling back the state, for example, you're not going to be putting money into things. So by forcing the sale of housing association properties, if you like, or creating the opportunity for the right to buy in housing association properties, um, this forces the council to sell properties. So quite quickly, you're starting to put public sector housing into private ownership not you know, on a mass scale, to the individual. And that's part of the philosophy. The philosophy is to enable people to own their own homes. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's the way that is, that is working. But in the medium term, quite quickly, the public rented sector declines very fast. And this is fine, provided the market will provide. But we know the reason we have public sector housing at all is because the market doesn't provide unless we tolerate higher occupancies per room. We're going back to a long time ago. I can only think that nobody behind this legislation has actually read any books by the social reformers of the 19th century because we are going back to, you know, there's some, the real slum clearances of the late 19th century where you had thousands of people in a square mile where the rents from slum properties exceeded those in Mayfair per square foot because there were so many in there and the sort of people that make the, the, the appallingness of it all is something we never want to go back to. Um, and, we, so, and we find ourselves now in a bizarre dilemma <coughs> of why would we encourage affordable housing? Why would we work with the Housing Association to provide an exception site, to provide affordable housing as a result of that is we've got to sell off our own homes when the right to buy kicks in for those. And it, it, it is bizarre. So it's, uh, you know, what do we do about this? I'll come back to that. We've looked at um, 
planning and how the government is really forcing the pace on the preparation of the local plan. But actually, we know to our cost, the local plan process is ludicrously complicated. There's so many places you can trip and fall, uh, as we did. And, um, you know, it is not, they have not made it at all easy or straightforward. And there's also a crisis in the construction market. We're seeing um, <coughs> completions fall at the moment. There's a, the construction market is in decline and we haven't got the skills to do it. And I'll give you my normal, at this sort of stage, I normally say something about the capacity of the district because uh, people say there isn't room for us to build houses, the place is overcrowded. Well, Uttlesford is 641 square kilometres in area. 93% of Uttlesford is unbuilt, has nothing on it. Um, so that brings it down to 596 square kilometres. That's 59,600 hectares, more or less. And um, so take an average density of 30 dwellings to the hectare. That gives us a capacity of 1,788,390 new homes. So we've just got the uh, Schmal figures, 568 houses a year. Well, that would take 3,148 <laughs> years to cover Uttlesford in concrete. Now, a lot can happen in that sort of time. Think back, those of us near retirement will be, can remember 3,000 years ago, they're just burying Tutankhamun. Civilizations come and go, things happen in that sort of day. So do not tell me there isn't room enough for, to take the housing that we are required to take. We're not required to take 1,700,000 houses. We're looking at 12,500 houses. It ain't difficult. And I would also remind you, because I do like this one, that our population at 80,000, we will all fit in Wembley Stadium. And this, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> the message has got across. <laughs> the snag is it's now 83,000. <laughs> um, we've looked at homelessness. We've looked at, uh, and what we haven't seen though is how the government, the new government, the housing bill has nothing in there about how it's going to address homelessness and provision of, of facilities and accommodation for vulnerable people of all kinds. Uh, we see you know, so many heartbreaking cases there and how will government policy address that. We don't know that. And we've looked at independent living and how we can all you know, do what we can to stay in our own homes longer. That is part of the solution of the problem. Part of the solution, part of the solution is uh, you know, people caring for their own relatives rather than putting them in, in homes. But that isn't the whole solution because some people just cannot be cared for in the home. So there are an awful lot of things that we haven't done. So what do we do? You know, we've got this rather bleak picture of, um, uh, of a complete sea change in the, in the housing, the affordable housing market. Do we just, I mean, one of, the, one of the things we are doing, obviously, and the leader is quite right to do so, is to make strong representations to the, um, to the Secretary of State uh, using what political contacts we have. And also, um, I know that we have been leading with the Essex leaders as well to get a joint uh, commentary to the Secretary of State as well. So we are doing that. But eventually, we are going to have to make this work for us. So we are going to have to look at how we can make a discounted market scheme work for us in the best possible way we can. But how this leaves us on the, the, uh, the social side, the vulnerable side, the sheltered side, I don't know yet. So that is where I leave it. It's not a bleak picture at all, but it's a matter of a coming to terms with a completely different approach to affordable housing.
So on that note, can I thank everyone for, for coming, thank everyone for participation, and thank everyone for listening to me in stunned silence. Thank you all very much. <laughs>